0: Look at Stenhouse in that 17 in the middle, back and forth and Boy, back Boy, he and just forth. shoved Kyle Busch right out of the way. Ricky Stenhouse in the 17, the third place. White flag with Stenhouse up in position to challenge in that blue four. You know what, Larry, I believe that tape's gonna stay on there and that baby's gonna come home a winner. Denny Hamlin has not lost a race this week. He's number 11. Keselowski, the 2012 champ battling back to the top and Dale Earnhardt Jr. The Pied Piper of Daytona trying to hold them all at bay. And Kyle Bush was trying to make a third line at the top of the racetrack. Boy, here they come. Now, this is where it gets interesting. We've seen a lot of passes off turn four than a start-finish line. But that 88 is pulling away. Less than a mile to go. Oh, he got a wreck. Third-generation star Dale Earnhardt Jr. Brings him to the flag. Checkered flag waving. It's over. It's Earnhardt.
1: I swear to God that highlight seemed a lot shorter the first time I played it than when we played it for air there.
2: Yeah, I was going to say... Uh,
1: but not a bad call there. Exciting moment. For no, I was going to
2: say I don't watch much of any NASCAR, but it sounds kind of cool in the headphones. Like, it's a really cool sounding sport.
1: Welcome to the Sportscasters Season 4, Episode 5, February twenty fifth, 2014. Apologize for not being here last week, but I was away uh, all weekend at Yale, watching some hockey games, a good one and a bad one. (laughs) And then another thing was everyone was in Sochi. Right. Uh, And in the time that I had to book, it just didn't add up, and I was worn out anyway from the weekend. So Don and I took an impromptu week off. That one's on
2: me. So here, I mean, you mentioned we met the Yale quota already, but I'll I'll go deeper. It may come up again. I'm getting a lot of questions – uh, from family. Is Anthony playing? He is, right? Yes. Okay, so he's he's playing through his knee injury. He is
1: a probably a, about fifty percent. He wears a brace. Oh, okay. Which they have to tape. His knee, his right knee looks about three times larger than his left knee, which makes it funny that his his injury is listed as lower body <laughs> because <laughs> as though they can there's, hide it? there's not much hiding that one. Right, but okay,
2: because uh, I got a lot of questions from family that probably I think saw a picture on Facebook.
1: I did post a picture that said "busted face, busted, busted knee, knee," right? Uh, and I think that misled people. Okay, uh, he took a high stick on Friday in the jaw. Oh. And uh his jaw you could see was all swollen. So it kind of got and it's when you wear a shield those high sticks to the face are rough cuz it kind of gets caught underneath. Okay. You could tell where it got under and like kind of scraped on its way out. Got gotcha. down.
2: Okay, that's what I was telling family. I was just making sure my story was right. He yeah. had like a strain MCL or He did. Something. He
1: re-injured his MCL. But I mean it stinks. He missed 8 games. That's almost a third of the year regular season. Could have yeah, had a huge sucks. year, but are That's the Yale hockey. police
2: going to come after us for blowing in the uh, lower body injury? They can if they want, but I'm going to tell them that
1: there's that they're crazy if they think <laughs> anyone doesn't know. because it's under
2: that massive knee. Yeah. yeah. So,
1: but uh, And Don says the Yale quote has been accomplished. I will warn you, we did speak with Pete Weber today as we list the guests. Uh, hockey broadcaster, play-by-play, current play-by-play man for the National Predators. Might be the first time we've ever had a current, Every day, play-by-play guy for the four major sports teams. Obviously, we've had Kenny Albert in, right? A guy who calls the four major Tariqo. sports. Oh, we've had for, okay. Chirico. But the this is a guy. Sports. This is a guy who calls a specific team's games every night. I don't know that we've gotcha. ever had anyone in that capacity before. Probably not. He almost died in the Minnesota Wilds Arena uh, of a heart attack a couple of weeks ago. Really? Two games before. Uh, the lockout, but was saved by what is an incredible infrastructure of health, life, health-saving things that go on in NHL rinks. Really, between trainers and yeah, yeah, equipment and whatever. Uh, and he's going to share his story there. Also, talk about all the years he was a Buffalo sports legend, having done the color for the uh, comeback game with Van Miller, and having called on on radio the uh sabres only game seven victory, uh Robert or uh, Robert. Uh it would be cool if Robert Plant scored that goal. Uh Derek Plant's uh only Ottawa, yeah. only uh overtime goal. We're gonna talk to him about his time in Buffalo. That's the only time the Sabres have won a game seven. Only huh? time, yeah. Wow. And uh we're gonna talk to him about a bunch of different uh different topics. Calling National Predators games, how good is Shea Weber. Really he's mm-hmm. a fascinating interview, one of the better ones we've had in a while Speaking of fascinating interviews, Matt Crossman, who first came to us when he was a writer for what now isn't even a magazine anymore, the Sporting News. Okay. Uh, he's moved on, and he covers all kinds of things for some s- websites we like, Sports on Earth. Uh, one we don't care for that much, Bleacher Report. <laughs> and also, uh, and I don't, I don't say that to be mean. I just don't think either of us read Bleacher Report much. Uh, Dan Levy is uh, one of the main men there, and he's been nice enough to be on the show a few times and really helped launch us a bit when we first started and had him on when his now great podcast ended.
2: Is he the guy I asked what it's like working for the TMZ of sports? No, that's Sports Grid. Sports Grid. Yeah, I forget. Glenn Davis is that guy. I get them all mixed up. Them, Deadspin, they're kind of like... All that same vibe.
1: But uh, Matt Crossman's going to be on to talk about uh, the demise of Sporting News, uh, writing long form versus covering events, and a little bit of NASCAR as he He does that uh, in Charlotte. And he'll talk to us about Dale Earnhardt winning that just a little bit. We'll touch on that. Pretty interesting story. Uh, not something we probably would have done if a rookie won the race, but when you got a guy who's as big in sports and pop culture really as Dale Earnhardt, Earnhardt Jr. is, uh, we'll give that some time today. And also we'll talk with Anthony DeMoro, who's from a website called SportsRants.com, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about the WWE launching, the WWE Network, oh. and uh, how he thinks that went as we made an issue of that on the show a few weeks ago and, and how other sports would be monitoring to see how that got off the ground. And uh, I'll give my take on it in uh, one last thing. So we'll do those three interviews. We will do a book club update and we'll do the greatest of all time. Before we can do any of that, let's start things off with three things.
0: One. Alrighty,
1: I'll kick it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback.
0: <laughs> can we just become best friends? Yep!
1: When I checked it, I must have rewound it all the way. But it's 13 minutes of whooping. All right. I obviously didn't have that cued right, but you got the idea.
2: <laughs> a little behind the scenes
1: there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. First thing we're going to share today is the Olympics of Sochi have come and gone. Uh, somewhat uneventfully, I would say. Uh, not There was no international incident, which is a good thing. Right. That's a plus. That's a plus. So that didn't happen, which I think a lot of people feared. And uh, the time zone thing hurt it. Uh, I I feel like for some reason, when I look back on this Olympics in 20 years, I'm going to think about Bob Costas, eyes.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that probably was the biggest, uh, not not
1: enough Americans, maybe winning events in the more prominent, uh, events. Like we didn't, we did very well in the medal count, finished second only to Russia who bought a lot of those medals, by the way, you know, guys from South Korea winning four medals from them only lived there for 18 months. Uh, you know, but whatever. Russia was going to do what they were going to do to be at the top of that medal right. count, uh, but and then the bigger stars didn't win either. You know, the hockey team didn't medal. Uh, Miller didn't medal.
2: The hockey wasn't particularly good either, the,
1: and that's was the next thing I was going to say. It was a dreadful hockey tournament. Yeah, it was dreadful. There was one.
2: It's almost iconic like-
1: game, and then a bunch of just bad
2: defensive. Hockey. You go back to I don't know how what people refer to it as like the middle lockout, not this past lockout, but the one before it, and there was all those ideas. How do we make this game better, faster, more exciting, whatever? Olympic sheet was a big idea behind it, and it's almost like this year Olympic sheet, like the trap, was brought to the Olympic sheet. Uh, Coaches figured out that yeah, the ice is wider. There's more room out there, but you can force people even wider to take bad shots and. It's why there were tons of shots in games, but not a lot of scoring. And
1: here's the thing about international hockey and why it, it works and doesn't. And the women's tournament is another example of this. When you start the tournament, you start with, in the in the men's case, 12 teams. I don't remember how many of the women started with. Only six teams even have a chance in hell of winning. Yeah. Okay, now in women's, there's only two teams that have a chance to win. Yeah,
2: that's it's terrible
1: that right. women's. Right, Okay. So in the ho- let's talk about the men's, and congratulations to the women on a great final, and what a great game for Canada. And right, they may have been the best They may have been the best event of the whole Olympics, that game. That right one there. game, right? right. And congratulations to the women for putting on an amazing uh, show. Unfortunately, and this isn't sour grapes, I think the whole hockey world would agree. Fortunately, the refs were way too involved in that overtime. Yeah. Both ways. Uh, both ways. Just bad calls all around. But when you start a tournament with 12 teams— And only six can win. That means you basically have two of the teams in each of the groups. So that means really you only have one exciting group game per group. Mm -hmm. So that's three games right there. Right. And sometimes those games work out in the case of the U.S. and Russia and Finland and Canada. Right. Uh, And then other times they don't. In the case of, uh, what was the marquee game? Sweden and whoever was number two. Czech Republic maybe was number two in their
0: uh, grouping. But they had a horrible tournament.
1: Right. So... You throw them out, and now you're only down to five teams that can win. Slovakia had a bad tournament, anyway. The point is, is there's very limited interest in the group round, which is really just jostling for position mm-hmm. to get make your path. Yeah, as no easy one gets eliminated in that round either. And then when you have everyone in in the next round, the qualification round, and you have one upset, which we did, that takes away one of your four games being good. Now instead of having all of the teams that have a chance to win in the quarterfinals you only have five of them and it seemed like latvia who yeah on the surface they gave canada a game but i mean they were outshot 59 to 10 or something the score was close but i mean canada was never going to lose that game uh and then you know finland our czech republic didn't give the u.s a game uh sweden and Finland. Oh, that was a semifinal. It just was a bad tournament. I mean, I'm dragging it out. Yeah, I the, can't games, remember the games every that result, were. But it, there was one good game. Uh, the Canada U.S. game was another game that wasn't close despite the score. The right. U.S. never never was a threat in
2: those games. And the bronze medal game, the U.S. didn't even show didn't up. Didn't show man. up.
1: And I, I feel bad for Patrick Kane. Yeah. Uh, those, sh- those two, he had two penalty, shots. penalty shots, yeah. the, those didn't work out. First one he misses, he kind of missed the deke at the side of the net, and second one he hit the post. I mean, he had the goal he beat by a mile, but uh, for all, all the heat that some of the U.S. Olympians have taken, he's not the guy I'd put it on. I feel like he left it all out there. He sure. didn't get a goal, but he did have five assists in five games. I don't know how much more you need point wise, and you know TJ Oshie. Unfortunately, that didn't happen in a medal round. Everyone's gonna forget about that in a month. The <laughs> yeah. answer to a trivia question. But uh, yeah, it was a dud for me. It was a bad tournament, and the Olympics in general just were not that memorable.
2: Yeah, uh, like like we talked about earlier, you always ask like if, it'll, if I'll be on if I'll be watching, and I did, and I watched most of, like I watched whenever I could, and I'd watch it even live sometimes if I was staying up late enough. But yeah, like you said, Bob Costas' eyes. Like my thing, uh, I kept joking with Mrs. Caster that I'm gonna get season tickets to the Russian curling team. Like, female, Russian... They're gorgeous. Hot,
1: yeah, 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 hot. There were some hot girls in the Olympics. But
2: uh, other than, like, they lost right away, too. So I kind of picked the team. It's like, oh, man, these these girls are beautiful. I'm going to root for them. And they lost, like, the next time I watched them. So, yeah, there wasn't a lot to root for. There wasn't the big names. Uh, Sean White didn't do well, so...
1: On to the next thing, which I guess on the sports calendar, is the NCAA tournament.
2: Sure. Or the... uh, no, right. It's, it's yeah. got to be next. Yep. So that's next. All right. All right. Uh, me or you? Doesn't matter. Go for it. All right. Uh, the Combine is another thing that uh, happened while we were off and it came and went. I don't, I don't know what to think about the Combine. It doesn't I, translate to TV well. When I used to, I don't watch much TV before work, but when I used to, like I used to have like a, in my old house, I had a TV in my kitchen and I would sit down, i eat breakfast, watch, I'd watch The Combine in the morning, We'd probably showing reruns or whatever. And I, I didn't know what I was looking at then, and I still don't really know what I'm looking at. I watched some of the offensive tackles do drills, and I don't know what I'm watching for. So other than, like, the measurable, like, the uh, bench presses or the standing vertical jump or the 40-yard dash, I don't I don't know what I'm watching. Someone and, tweeted something funny like,
1: we've seen you sack, rush the passer on film against people, but we really
2: need to see you do it against punching bags. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't, I don't Do you think they would lose anything by just eliminating it? Like what are they getting other than the interviews? I would guess that's probably what they would argue is maybe as important as anything they do on the field. I think it's the thing that makes the draft full of so many busts
1: is they gather way too way too much information. It's going to be even worse this year with a, r- a longer draft season. Yeah. Uh, Peter King made a great point. One of the best wide receiver workouts in the last 5 years was Stephen Hill of the Jets, Mm. right? So he climbed up draft board. So there's going to be for the players, it's a day where you can make a lot of money. Sure, you could lose a lot of money. Well, I've I've heard
2: Michael Sam's didn't have a very good combine. He had a terrible
1: combine, and that's going to make things more difficult for him. Right. uh, If he didn't already have, but I I bet what he didn't have a great combine in the measurements, but he did have a good combine. I'm sure with his interviews, he had a chance to sit down and talk to maybe maybe alleviate concerns. But what his combine is going to do is any team that was kind of hesitant
2: already, it's got an out now. Sure. You know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what it. I mean, Sam Bradford, what was he considered to be before that combine? He showed up. First pick, probably. You think he still was? Yeah. Because he showed up like 20 pounds. I think he needed to just prove that he was not still injured. Right. Which that can be for some people. Right, but I mean, I remember. I remember the big thing with him was he showed up twenty pounds heavier, and I don't but not overweight. He didn't like, really
1: work out on the field. I remember he saved that for the oh, OU okay. pro day. But I think he was just there for the interview parts. I don't think he did much athletics there. Yeah, it's such a
2: it's such a weird thing. Like, what can you, what do these guys do that they didn't do like the last day they played the season before that all of a sudden they shoot up the draft board or down the draft board? Like, like you said, there's a lot of people that overthink it probably, and they love that forty. Oh my God, do they? They love it.
1: All right, my second thing, uh, we're going to talk with Matt Crossman a little bit about this, but a really interesting day for NASCAR in the Daytona 500 on Sunday. I don't know if you've seen this play out, Don, but it was supposed to start at like 1 or 2 o'clock, which at 1 or 2 o'clock it wasn't even on my radar. I forgot it was even happening that day. Okay. Uh, but So during the long rain delay, which was even a tornado warning and stuff like that, Fox decided to spend that time by airing last year's race. Really? Which ended up tricking hundreds of people on Twitter. Uh (laughs) There was several tweets made from people yelling at the announcer for incorrectly saying that Jimmy Johnson has won five championships because he's won six. Oh. You know, but uh, that one came at the end of last season. And uh, even more foolishly, many uh, feminists uh, were caught tweeting about the great day Danica Patrick was having and what a great thing it was for women's sports and bravo to Danica and all kinds of people. When did they actually run the race? Uh, it started at 8.30 p.m. P.m. Under the Sunday. yeah
2: Okay, because I... About six-hour rain delay. Hurt. I had a friend over, and I thought they were canceling it altogether for the day. I'm sure they considered that, and if a tornado so, came through, they probably would have had to. Oh, right. That's right. There was tornado <laughs> right. warning. Uh, yeah, he, uh, yeah, he's uh, like, oh, the Daytona 500's... Or canceled or postponed or whatever. I'm like, oh, I didn't even know what was going on. And then, yeah, they came back at 8 p.m., huh? My
1: CNN.com app sent me an alert at about 5 p.m. Congratulate Jimmy Johnson on winning the thing. Really? Yes. (laughs) CNN was also tricked. But uh, they did run it, and one of the biggest names in the sport, Dale Earnhardt Jr., one, I did see the last ten laps or so, and it was very exciting. Uh, about as exciting as compelling as that sport can be, high speeds and crashes and cars spread out all over the track and big names in the hunt. And uh, so I don't know about if it was a great day for NASCAR, or a good day, a bad day, but we'll find out more from Matt Crossman. But it was a very interesting day.
2: Okay, I believe the last time we were on, I talked about Jonathan Martin and how maybe people were going to have to eat crow about Richie Incognito and the tweets that came or the text right. And message. now he's. The good guy again, right? Yeah, Jonathan Martin is the good guy again. It just keeps going back and forth. I don't know what to think of this story anymore. It's going to be really interesting to see what comes out because what we do know is the texts I mentioned last podcast and that from those texts, they sound like two guys that are buddy-buddy and then all of a sudden aren't. So there is some major information that's – there's some gap in there in a small amount of time, but there's some gap in information there. Now this morning, Jason Lockenfoura gets a story that, and it, you should he,
1: say too that a report that the Dolphins Commission, an independent report, came out and basically painted Incognito to be the bad guy
2: right, again, right. right? Again, right? Yeah, they reiterated that. Well, Jason Lockenfoura tweeted something this morning. I don't have the exact tweet in front of me, but it basically said Jonathan Martin is asking to be waived. That would it would be back. unfair for him to try to go back into that locker room. Blah blah blah. Well, a few hours ago, Jason Lock tweets, uh, a statement from Rick Smith, Martin's agent, says, we have no idea where you got this information, but it wasn't even close. We'd appreciate it if everyone backed off and, if, and allowed the process to happen organically. So I don't know what's going on at all. Uh, don't say anything bad about Jonathan Martin, though. Man, he's sensitive. Holy cow. Oof. There is some, like I said, major gap in the amount of information we have, because it's when I read those texts, it felt like I knew a little bit about Jonathan Martin and Richie Incognito, and it didn't feel like Jonathan Martin was being pushed around and doing things he didn't want to. But all of a sudden, this story has resurfaced with just as much vigor as there was when it first came out. So I don't know what's going on. I don't know how much I even want to comment on this anymore because I keep going back and forth about it. Right. So, Maybe we do have to let the, what did the agent say? Let it. The process happen organically. Yeah, maybe we're going to have to do that. Yeah, uh, <laughs> every time I say something about it, something new comes out that contradicts what I said the last time. So that may be the last time you hear about me as far as Jonathan Martin goes until something concrete comes out.
1: And I don't mean to be insensitive toward Jonathan Martin, but, I mean, people like Peter King and Jason Locke and Flora and Ian Rappaport tweet every day about this player – ask this or this right. report, this or this source that. And very rarely does the player agent wrong. need to come out well, right, right. and tweet and like ask for, that just seems weird to me too. This is just very strange. Thing. Very strange. All right. My last thing is also about an insensitive tweet. We mentioned Michael <laughs> Sams earlier um, in what was a great week for, uh, I guess Jason Collins, who was the, became the first athlete to break the, uh, the wall down in the four major sports. I guess uh, he came out last year in a Sports Illustrated art- article, and then didn't get signed by a team this year. Was signed to a ten-day contract last week. Got to play in a game. So great week for gay and lesbian rights. That in that sense, right? Uh, today, PGA golfer Steve Elkington made a joke about Michael Sam, and I'll read it. This is a quote. ESPN reporting: Michael Sam is leading the handbag throw at the NFL Combine. No one else expected to throw today. Believe it or not, that didn't go over very well <laughs> on the internet. Um, first of all, if you're going to basically ruin your reputation on a joke, might have
2: now. Elk thought Elk, about that. Elkington or Elk, as they call him. Uh, I mean, his buddies call him. They call him on the Jim Rome show. He is a straight shooter guy. He's always funny. He's always walks that line. I mean, he does play an individual sport. I'm sure he has sponsors, but he says that the, the tweet
1: came after he was criticizing ESPN for covering Sam. And his spin is that I'm for Sam. I'm against ESPN telling me he's gay. And then he said, it goes back to a ball hit an oriental spectator. There's no oriental spectators, just spectators. Like I'm Sam, he's just an athlete. I see. I I don't buy it so necessarily. He so he's saying that his gay tweet that made fun of Sam was meant to be making fun of ESPN's ESPN. coverage of Sam.
2: Yeah, I guess you got to do it a little more blatantly than that. I Elkington is who he is. I mean, which is kind of like not really saying anything, but Elkington is a goofball. He is a Right. He is that type of guy. I'm surprised he backed off it at all 'cause he's just a he's just a silly guy, but that said, I mean he's gotta know better like, He's gonna have to make a strong
1: donation to the gay and lesbian community sure. charity of his choice here and yeah, I
2: don't know I don't know who his sponsors are, but I'm yeah. sure they're he's, he's got they' got, got him on the phone today. he's got some work so. to do all right uh. I think that's everything.
1: That's it. Last thing. All right. We're going to take a break and come back with uh, Pete Weber, the play-by-play man for the Nashville Predators. Our next guest grew up in Illinois and is a graduate of the University of Notre Dame and was one of the voices of my youth calling sports in buffalo for the bisons the bills and the sabers he's currently the play-by-play broadcaster for the national predators and gave everyone a scare last week but we're glad to have him making his first appearance on the podcast today warm sportscasters welcome to the great pete weber how are you doing today pete
0: i am doing very well glad i'm here to talk to you and i gotta tell you uh, those years in Buffalo were probably many of the best of my life. So I, I truly enjoy having the chance to chat with a Western New Yorker.
1: Yeah, and I'm not kidding when I say one of the voice voices of my youth. I I listened to a lot of radio uh, when I was younger, and you always seem to be that. I want to ask you, did you call, and my, the details are a little fuzzy because I was young at the time, but did you call the okay. game? All right, so let's work this out together. It was a Bisons game. One of the first times they made the playoffs in the pilot field era at the time and i don't remember if yep. it was a one game playoff or not but they went all night long like it went into the night a real late inning game that they ended up losing is that is that
3: one yeah that was long? on
0: uh, that was september 1990 it was uh, labor day monday night and it was a playoff steve to make the playoffs there was a tie atop the american association east with ironically, for where I live now, the Nashville Sounds. And yes, it went, uh, it was an unscheduled game. They still sold 16,000 tickets starting that morning, day of game. And when, as it turned out, 18 innings until it was decided that Nashville would win the American Association East and then go on to play for the Association Championship. Yes, <laughs> I did that game. Uh, And I still have several recordings of it on several uh, computers here.
1: I thought you did because my dad and grandfather went to that game, and I remember listening to it all night. Like I remember laying around, you know, my (laughs) my mom coming in a few times, like saying, "Is this over yet? Like are they coming home?" You know, and I was like, you know, no, no, not not over yet. You know, and I just remember that going like all night. That has to be. A uh, huge memory of your time in Buffalo. Are there any other Sabres games, Bills games, Bisons games, ones that jump out as favorite moments calling Buffalo sports?
0: Well, the Bills come back against the Houston Oilers uh, in the divisional playoff round, where they ended up going on to the Super Bowl yet again. Another radio only uh,
1: game, right? Yeah, That wasn't on TV it, Yeah, yeah.
0: Right. I I remember I sent away for a VHS tape to someone in Virginia so I could have the video of that uh, shortly thereafter, though we did get the the specials put together courtesy NFL Films on the Empire Sports Network uh, during that next week. For the Buffalo Sabres, it has to be being privileged enough to have called the only Game 7 win the team has ever had in the playoffs, and that in uh, 97 against the Ottawa Senators. Uh, Derek Plants, uh, two goals in that game, including the game winner in overtime. Uh, But for the Bisons, uh, still the most memorable game for me is going to be their playoff with Denver in 1991, where they took the first two games at Pilot Field, both by 4-1 scores and in a best of five, only need to win one more, even with the next three coming up in Denver. Well, they got pounded in game three in Denver and brought about game number four. Game number four was going into the history books one way or another. Greg Matthews was pitching a no-hitter. It would have been the first nine-inning no-hitter in the history of Mile High Stadium. All the years that they had had professional baseball there. And uh, being a hitter's paradise, really pointing out all of that out. So it's 9 nothing Denver going to the top of the ninth inning. 32 minutes later, Greg Edge carrying the tying run was called out, you notice I said called out, at home plate, the tying run. It was 9-8, the final. Uh, All hell broke loose shortly thereafter. Players, including and including general manager Mike Blonnie, were suspended for what turned out to be the deciding game the next day. But that's a game I will never forget. You think a totally lost cause. And then Jeff Bannister leads off that ninth inning with a base hit. Then there's a three-run homer later on in the inning by Brian Dorsett. And then the bases filled. Uh, Eddie Zambrano scored the uh, first of the what should have been three runs. And then Ty Ganey got the next, as I recall. But Greg Edge was called out at home plate by umpire Scott Potter. Not that I remember anything particularly about that.
1: I want to ask you a little bit about some of the guys you work with, but I'm going to save that for a little bit more when we talk about what you're currently doing for Nashville. You kind of directed me earlier to a blog uh, that you wrote about your experience last week uh, having some health issues. I guess mm-hmm. you were in Minnesota. A couple weeks ago now, it happened uh, right before before the break in Minnesota, and as I was reading it, one thing that I thought of is anyone who's in hockey at really any level, and, and I'm sure there's people who are maybe more involved in other sports that would would want to stick up for their sport and say it's the same uh there as well but we've seen so many in buffalo we've seen it with uh zednik uh Malarchuk, uh oh, yeah. potential tragedies that get avoided by the way the nhl has just the the dedication of, their, of the people that work for these teams and, and the, the things that are in place to avoid them, and you lived it. Do you want to talk a little bit about your blog and, and what you wrote and, and kind of give a little bit of an extra thank you to, to so many of the people that helped you and I guess we can say saved your life in a sense?
0: Oh, yeah, and I'd like to point out a commonality in those two things you you cited, Richard Zednick and Clint Malarchuk. And here was a guy who was working on two different sides of that but was there in Buffalo for both to help save the lives. And that was Jim Pizzatelli, who I first met when he was trainer of the Rochester Americans. He was with the Sabres for Clint Malarchuk, knew to go out there and put pressure down on the carotid artery, and he did the very same thing working for his old Rochester boss, Mike Keenan, with the Florida Panthers, to save Richard Zednik as well. It's an amazing how when you have the right people there at the right time, People can be saved. I don't think there's any question about that, but Jim Pizzatelli was the guy who was the hero uh, on two different hockey nights in Buffalo in two different buildings. Yes, absolutely.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know, and then you think about I know the Rangers had a first round pick who uh, passed away playing in Russia. And uh, there was talk, yeah. you know, they didn't have the proper equipment on hand and, and what a mess it could be. But the NHL just seems to be so great about this, and maybe it leads us a little bit into your experience that you blogged about. And people can read that on nationalpredators.com, by the way, and we'll link it as well so people can find it easily. But uh, you kind of seen those those moving pieces and how, how effective yeah. they can be.
0: Yeah, well, and I saw it one night, too, uh, just coming back from the uh, lockout uh, number two uh, for the NHL, number one for the Predators. In 2005, in a game at Detroit, Yuri Fisher all of a sudden passed out on the Red Wings bench. That's right. And, yeah. and uh, thankfully, the doctor sitting right behind the bench got down there with the paddles. to. It took several jolts uh, to resuscitate him, so Yuri Fisher, while no longer a player, uh, is still among us. And thoughts like these, Steve, were going through my head. Uh, as I was fairly certain I was in the early stages of of a heart attack uh, a couple of Thursdays ago. But I knew that when, uh, you know, we use what resources are available to us. So I had written uh, on the blog, on the National Predators website, that I felt a tingling sensation along my jawline, across both sides, and a cold, clammy feeling. Nothing else. Nothing like when you, uh, if you can recall the stand-up routine, that Richard Pryor did about his heart attack, which made it sound like, you know, there were boulders being thrown by Samson onto his chest and he couldn't breathe. I experienced none of that. But I did go to my computer and Google that particular uh, symptom or thinking it may be one of those trigger point symptoms, the the, jing- the tingling feeling, and saw that, yes, it could be. So I immediately decided to get dressed, get cleaned up, get dressed, cut short that workout, go downstairs, uh, tell the guys at our scheduled production meeting, I don't think so, uh, boys. So they immediately got me some aspirin and uh, got me going. And I could tell by the looks on their faces when I came to the table that I must have looked like some sort of monster or at least a person not feeling very well at that point in time or in some sort of distress. Within no time, I was over checking in with the Predators trainers at the XL Energy Center some uh, two and a half hours before the Predators would take the ice. They called in the Minnesota Wild training staff, too, and as they did that, they contacted the St. Paul Fire Department EMTs, who came in and gave me a couple of EKGs and said, uh, would you please step onto the stretcher? We're going over to United Hospital. They took me directly to the cath lab, do not pass go, do not pass through the emergency entrance. I was on the table uh, within half an hour of the time I turned myself into the training staffs and uh, was pretty much uh, awake and uh, cognizant during the angioplasty that uh, they performed on me, and I kept feeling better as that process went along. And then they put in the three stents and said they normally uh, would probably have kept me over that weekend to put the other stent in, but since uh, my surgeon in charge there, uh, Dr. Biggs, in St. Paul, had been Vanderbilt educated, he just sent me with videos of the whole procedure and everything, back to Vanderbilt, and they wanted one more stent, put in another artery. The following Thursday, it was done, and uh, I'd have to say, I've probably come off pretty easily in this whole procedure, but I'm, but it was all because of people, timing, and the proximity from the XL Energy Center to United Hospital. And what a busy day that turned out to be for Predators trainer Andy Hostler. I mean, because when the team was on the ice about two hours later that morning, that's when General Manager David Boyle, got hit with a deflected pass in a D-to-D drill uh, from Shea Weber and, you know, uh, effectively breaking the orbital and suborbital bones around his eye, bones in his nose. And uh, we don't know yet for sure it's been published, but they're still concerned about whether or not he will regain his vision in his eye. So between the two of us, (laughs) I'm the the lucky one. I'm the lucky one from that day.
1: Right. Wow. Unbelievable story. And in all that, so was that before the last game before the olympic break
0: our next to last that right. was thursday in minnesota and then finished up at home on saturday night against the anaheim ducks what a nice uh, schedule for the ducks huh? they were home flew east for one game for many of their team and then well had back. to fly back to the west coast
1: well that's pretty impressive you know heart attack four stents and you're only gonna miss two games i mean that's a hockey player right that's
0: timing, huh?
1: <laughs> it's a hockey player right there.
0: The it, first game I ever missed that I was assigned to was that Thursday game uh in Minnesota.
1: You got your start in hockey at Notre Dame and yep. uh the Notre Dame actually played a hockey game last year that basically changed the life my life and my whole family's life and uh Yeah. Yeah, you know, if they uh don't win against Michigan uh, last year in the final was it CCHA championship mm-hmm. game ever played uh, my brother's hockey team does not go to the NCAA tournament and does
0: not win it. Unbelievable, right? And what a family experience you people had! Yeah, had no, it started sleep. quite a run. For I mean, sure. I mean that should be the basis or the start of a very interesting book.
1: Right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's funny because everyone who listens to the show regularly, they're having their eye roll portion of the show right now. It's like, oh, we're we're talking about <laughs> Yale hockey again. Great, <laughs> but uh. No, I just I saw that I wanted to mention that to you. Another unique kind of coincidence, Uh, but um, thanks to Anders Lee and the guys again. uh, I thank them often. Yes, right. Uh, But um, the other thing I want to ask you about is Nashville. So, oh wait, before we get to Nashville, the Olympics. Were you like me? Was that just a dreadful hockey tournament,
0: or did I miss something? There was there were highs and lows to be certain. Uh, Nothing higher, and nothing more. For a, I knew my heart was good. (laughs) When I got through the shootout (laughs) with TJ Oshie, or as he was referred to in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, TJ Sochi, uh, after his performance there, what could be more calming than seeing a guy in the highest of competitive circumstances smiling before he takes part uh, in virtually every uh, chance he had in that shootout? That was absolutely incredible to me. Now, if you're a fan of of Russia... You didn't enjoy that at all. No. Uh, if you're a fan of Canada, I don't know if you enjoy it so much or if you're going, whew, we had to do that, as if it was their birthright to win that gold medal. Um, it, it all depends on your point of view, what you've thought about it. I I thought the caliber of the hockey was great, and I, I'm very, very sorry for a number of clubs who ended up losing players, particularly the nephew of the Buffalo Bandits, John Tavares, of the same name with the New York Islanders, who won't be able to play the balance of this year. He's a fantastic young player, and I hear your dog agrees with you. Yeah, he loves assessment.
1: it. My dog, I'm, my dog, <laughs> wants to be a big part of the show today. He's two for two on interviews and barking. His name is well, Colston, and he's a he's a character on the show. So people know he barks. Colston. Sometimes. All right. Yep. All right.
0: Yep. Well, I love dogs, so I think this is absolutely fantastic. And my <laughs> dog is outside, or he'd be chiming in from this end. So. <laughs> That's the way that goes. Uh uh-huh. Yeah. That's
1: that's Rick, when you record at home, dogs bark sometimes. I'm sorry he, right. he interrupted you. But, you know, I had a question about as a broadcaster now, you're going to go back to, to Nashville, mm-hmm. and uh, the season's going to start up, and Nashville's third from the bottom in the west and not, probably not going to make the playoffs uh, this year. Is it is it more challenging as you get down the stretch to to call these games that I, I, I feel so bad for Rick John Rod, who's kind of in the – yeah. Announced as being in the twilight of his career, and, and to suffer through this brutal season, and who knows what next year his last year is going to bring? Maybe not much better, you know. Hopefully for him, it is. But as a broadcaster, how challenging is it going to be for you now uh, to call to call these last was it twenty games or so? Uh, kind of with not all that much uh, significant to, to play for 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 the Preds.
0: Well, at least at, as we resume, there still is there still is that hope there for the Predators. They know they have to really tear it up. They have to pass up uh, Winnipeg, Vancouver, and Phoenix, and then either of Dallas or Minnesota to make the uh, wild card in the Western Conference. They are in fair shape in terms of uh, overtime, not getting all their points in overtime. So ROW is in their favor, but they have 23 games now to make up four points. That's not that much, but it's passing those teams I mentioned, that are going to make it, I think, extraordinarily difficult. And uh, you know, as far as that goes, you can't say everybody holds on to what they have right now. Uh, My original NHL team, the Los Angeles Kings, is just barely hanging on as we join you for this chat. So I'm okay now at the outset of it, Stephen, but uh, if it gets to the point where they drop quite a few, say, out of the gate, and there's a five-game homestand to uh, restart the schedule for them, uh, then that would be a different case altogether. Uh, other than that, I mean, the, the best comparison I could give you I've had in my career would be as co-host of the old Buffalo Bills magazine TV show on cable, which was the uh, successor to the Chuck Knox show, so it gives you an idea how long ago that was, where we did highlights of the Buffalo Bills who those three seasons were 2-14, and 2-14, and 4-12. and, four and 12. You want to talk about Ouch. knowing you're out of it from the very outset. <laughs> right. And that Bills team that went 4-12 and 12 did so because they had signed Jim Kelly as quarterback that summer, and uh, they still ended up losing a game where they tried the Canadian defense in overtime against the New York Jets. They put 12 guys on the field, and Mickey Shuler was still wide open in the end zone to catch the game-winning touchdown pass. Uh, th- those are the Hank Buller days. So, uh, And with the Bisons... The last season with the Pirates in 1994 was, or 19, yeah, 1994, where Tim Wakefield, who then was released that winter by the Pirates and signed on. We know what he did with the Boston Red Sox. But when Tim Wakefield led that club in losses and was just getting hit all over the lot before he got his his knuckleball back under control or back functioning the way he needed it to work for him. So uh, any broadcaster, I, I guess... The best comparison would be Byron Som, longtime baseball broadcaster in Philadelphia. He made a critical error when they split him up. There were the Philadelphia A's and the Philadelphia Phillies, and at the start, he just did the home games, whichever club was at home, and they shared the same stadium. So that made things rather simple. But then they split off the broadcast, the Phillies had one setup, the A's another, and By Som chose the A's. Ooh. He announced more, if you will, losing games than any broadcaster in baseball history.
1: <laughs> <Can't>, <laughs> baseball has got to be the most daunting of them when you don't have a competitive team, too, especially if he's calling those games on radio. I mean, I, just, yeah.
0: I couldn't imagine. Damn. I mean, how about my old Bison broadcast partner, Greg Brown? Right, he yeah. left Buffalo uh, after Pirates, the right? season, yeah, yeah, and he was with them for their 20 consecutive losing seasons until, thankfully, they had this renaissance in 2013. But, I mean, it was getting to the point where they were, they were blaming Greg for the Pirates' <laughs> losing streak. That's not exactly
1: right. Right. Well, after 20 years, I guess you run out of people to blame for shit. Sure. Yeah, that's right. Right. So you get to, you get to the broadcaster. But we, we talked a little bit about some of the great moments you've, you've called here in Buffalo sports, and by doing it, you've called them with – we've been spoiled here, really. I mean, we've had guys like Van Miller and Rick jenner I mean, guys who are just – jewels to the sport and i'm sure you've had a chance to work alongside them and alongside so many different broadcasters in your career and i mean when you look you've been you know like you said los angeles and nashville and calling all the different sports even nba basketball for seattle supersonics who sadly are no longer
0: a team but yes my our our coffee buddies at starbucks have themselves to blame for that
1: that's right so uh just how lucky uh, i'm curious how to put this but how spoiled is Buffalo? I mean, are we re- we re- we got really lucky these last yes. thirty years, didn't we?
0: Yes, you did, and and I think, I think Buffalo is very similar to a city that uh, everybody knows has been blessed, and that's Los Angeles. I mean, they've right. had Vince Scully, Vin Scully since yeah. nineteen fifty eight when the Dodgers moved from Brooklyn. Poor guy can't keep a job, right? Right. They had Chick Hearn <laughs> from nineteen sixty one until two thousand two, who now he I'm prejudiced toward him. He hired me. Uh, to go out and join the Kings, but he was, I think, the best basketball announcer I ever heard on radio. I don't think there's any question about that. Some will argue in the East that it's Marv Albert, uh, but I just don't think he is Chick Hearn at all in that regard. And then uh, Bob Miller, who's been my former broadcast partner, still with the Kings, he's been there since 1973. So here you have uh, a bunch of long-termers, who have been spoiling the listeners in Southern California. And let's not forget Dick Enberg, who did the Angels and the Rams and UCLA for so long. Tom Kelly, uh, the voice of the USC Trojans, who was a Notre Dame guy I'm not supposed to praise, but uh, let's let's give credit where credit is due. And for that matter, Ralph Lawler, who's had to do our former Buffalo Braves, who became the San Diego and now Los Angeles Clippers, and he's done them since they moved to the West Coast in
1: 1978. Well, one last thing, I ask you one last thing. how great is shea Weber and uh <laughs> <laughs> I mean
0: we'll clear it. we'll clear out there is no blood relation there
1: no uh, well oh okay, that's too bad but uh yeah it is. yeah Especially uh, at Christmas time right How great is Shea Weber and um in terms of uh defensemen that you've had the pleasure to call on a regular basis, kind of where is he kind of fitting in here because I watch i wa one of the things that really caught my eye is watching the Canadian some of the defensemen they have on that team and Drew, oh, Drew Doughty, especially uh, given his age, just to me, looks like a guy who's going to, uh, I don't know. I mean, the sky's the limit for how great both of yes. those guys can be really, but you get to see uh, a night, night in and night out. And before I let you go, I just like to get a little perspective on him.
0: And Drew Doughty, <clears throat> excuse me, has five years on Shea Weber too. So right. they're, the, the comparison, they're contemporaries, but not at the same level of development, but to see those two guys together, on the power play for Team Canada, I would say probably gave opposing goaltenders more than a few shivers uh, than anything else. But Shea Weber, we all know about the shot. Uh, And I don't know if people are as aware of this or not, but Shea's shot, you know, you always talk, and how many times coaches say, if you want to score goals, you got to go to the dirty areas, you got to go to the front of the net. Well, Shea has broken bones of three of his teammates who have gone to the front of the net. David Legwan, Marty Eret, Patrick Hornquist, all have suffered fractures as a result of that shot, which has been, you know, measured at upwards of 104 plus miles per hour uh, since he has been here. And, and I will also say, in terms of the equipment we talk about being such an advantage for today's players, Shea spent a full season with uh, a stick that he was no longer comfortable with because his manufacturer, and I won't name them here now, stopped producing that line that he was so successful with that had really captured the imagination of North America in those all-star game velocity or shooting velocity contests and all-star weekend. But I like what he does physically. Uh, he is a more of a, a quiet leader, leading by example than by speech. And I should send you, Steve, I got a picture of him the year the Predators drafted him, 2003. 2003, right? Yeah. The draft was here in Nashville. And so his name was Weber. The club posed me for a picture with him. And I agreed, agreed, Constant, <laughs> and posed me for a picture <laughs> with him. And he was uh, a mere, uh, a slight lad compared to what he looks like now. Now he's much more Paul Bunyan-esque. And uh, the club is wondering whether or not another young defenseman they just drafted this year, Seth Jones, who appears so right. slight yet so tall, will end up also growing into effectively what is his father's body, Popeye Jones, the longtime NBA power forward, uh, to see how that works out. But, uh, but Shea plays the game physically. No one has messed with him. He had a, he had a scrap early in his career with Travis Moen, then with Chicago Blackhawks where Moen had the upper hand. No one has had that with him since. And uh, when you think about, uh, well, um, there was Andreas Lilia who decided to try to rile Shea up a few years ago when Lilia was still playing for the Red Wings. Shea wasn't trying to do damage to him, but Lilia didn't play again for about a year and a half after he took some of his punches. Yeah. So uh, that, you know, that's kind of like the old Gordy Howe effect. It truly does buy respect.
1: Well, what a night. Uh, I was I, 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 just talking to a Sabres Friend about this recently about the way they've kind of stockpiled picks. And we were, t- it, yes, it, it came up because of the Islanders and the big decisions that they're going to have to make about whether they defer this pick uh, and risk potentially losing out on picking a guy like uh, uh, Connor McDavid next year yes. if they do defer it. But in one night, the Predators in their own arena drafted Ryan Sutter and Shea Weber in back And grounds. another
0: guy, four defensemen who played for them, one who plays in Buffalo, Alex Sulzer. And Kevin Klein now the New York Rangers. How about that? Four Four defensemen, three who have had heavy time playing in the league. Alex Sulzer has had to overcome some injuries. But to get that in one draft, well, if you look at that 2003 draft. Maybe the best going, draft the, ever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's a darn good chance that it was. Right. And, uh, you know, only one pick in that first round really has not played in the league.
1: Right. Hugh Jessman. Yeah. Yeah, from Dartmouth. Yep, 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 yep. Lee Stepniak, who's from Western New York, was basically was his mate at Dartmouth. Yes. So, yeah. But uh, listen, this has been an amazing uh, treat for me. Really an honor to have you on, on the show. We really appreciate it. Glad you're feeling well. Um, Thank you. And uh, really look forward to it, and hopefully uh, we can do it again
0: sometime. I would love to do it. And uh, folks, but, I am coming to Buffalo on March 11th, but I'm not going to have much time there. I'm getting cheated. Because we're playing in Ottawa the night before. Uh, uh, so we'll probably get to our hotel downtown around 1 in the morning and uh, then have our morning skate, the game, and fly right out afterwards. Uh, this is a bummer.
1: All right. Well, like I said, uh, oh, make sure you check out that blog, nationalpredators.com, and also you can find Pete on Twitter at Pete Weber Sports. Thank you, sir, very much. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. All right.
0: And I appreciate the time you devoted.
1: Alright, want to thank Pete Weber for being on the podcast today. Really appreciated that time with a Buffalo sports legend. Uh, move the book club up a little bit in the show today just because there is a lot to cover and I want to make sure it's going to be a longer show if you tap out before we get to the end. I want to make sure you got all the information for what we're doing on the book club. Uh, last week for our buddy Ed Sherman's book, Babe Ruth called Shot, The Myth and Mystery of Baseball's Greatest Home Run. Uh, really great story about One of the more famous home runs in baseball history, Babe Ruth's called shot. Did it happen? Didn't it happen? Some really interesting perspective in the book, and we should have that on next week to kind of close out. So if you have any questions about Babe Ruth's called shot, the myth and mystery of baseball's greatest home run, you can hit us at thesportscasters at gmail.com or at sports underscore casters on Twitter. The book was originally only available on Amazon, I think like in digital formats and we were saying like we'll be in store soon. I'm pretty sure it's everywhere now. So if you're still interested in picking this up, that shouldn't be a problem. And uh, next week we're going to interview Ed and we're going to start Jeff Perlman Month who's one of our favorite authors really in the history of the book club. He's one of two authors – To hold the unbelievable honor of writing a book club, book of the month, book of the year award for his work with uh, his Walter Payton book, which is his previous one, Sweetness. Uh, This time it's Showtime, Magic, Kareem, Riley, and the Los Angeles Lakers, Dynasty of the 1980s. Uh, I saw on Twitter Jeff is literally uh, going to be walking around handing out flyers outside of the Lakers arena this week to promote the book. So, pimping a book ain't easy. I guess not. Um, So, we have jeff coming up next month we're looking forward to that and then the following month is going to be jonah Carey expos month so busy couple of months for the book club three great books three great friends to the show ed sherman jeff roman and jonah Carey have all made multiple appearances on this show uh and have all been great to us i guess so we want to make sure we promote these books
2: i gotta say every i gotta like look at a picture of jonah Carey because i don't know what he looks like but every time i hear about him i picture jonah hill because Mm, nothing like that no i figured probably not (laughs) yeah but uh because they're both Jonas and right. both have like the baseball connection. They do. <laughs> so, one, one was in Moneyball, right. one wrote a book about Moneyball, right, but right. The, I think uh, that, that's what that, that's what screws me up. So I got to right. see a picture of Jonah Carey. All right, we are
1: going to take a break and come back with Matt Crossman. Our next guest is based in Charlotte, North Carolina, and is a graduate of Central Michigan University. He currently writes for Sports on Earth, SB Nation Longform, and the Charlotte Magazine, as well as other places. He's a former writer for Sporty News and is making his fourth appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the awesome Matt Crossman. What's going on, Matt? Yeah, not, much,
3: not too much. Thanks for having me on. It's
1: been it's a while. Yeah, it has been a while, actually. I don't know if I, yeah, let's See, let's see, last time you were on was Season 2, Episode 17, and this is Season 4, Episode 5, so, yeah, a while, for sure.
3: it's good to be back.
1: Yeah, it, it's funny, because last time you were on, you were on Sporting News, and Sporting News was such a big part of my life, like, growing up as a as a as someone who consumed sports media, and all through my childhood when it was a newspaper, and I'm going to turn it turned into a magazine, and now it just it seems like it doesn't even exist at all anymore, huh?
3: well uh, it was a big part of my life too uh and it still exists you know sportingnews.com is still there uh the magazine went away oh i guess a little bit more than a year ago uh they let me go in a, in a big purge uh in march so yeah it's uh, but honestly i have uh absolutely nothing but but fond memories uh it's obviously the most important thing working there was Not only the most important thing that ever happened to me professionally, but also by far and away the best. I mean, it was just an absolutely incredible experience. And no, it didn't end the way I had hoped, but uh, nothing ends the way you hope, otherwise, it wouldn't end. So I I think my fond memories of working there.
1: We've been big fans of Sports on Earth right from the beginning. Uh, We've had a lot of different guys from Sports on Earth come in and out. Have you had a good experience kind of with what you've been contributing to them so far?
3: Oh, absolutely! Uh, I, I love that site. It's uh, it's just a, t- a great mix of uh, in depth, you know, thickly reported, you know, features and profiles, but also really smart commentary. Uh, you know, anytime your your name can appear on the same website as you know guys like Culpepper Pepper and uh, and Dave Kindred and and Patrick Ruby, you know, you're doing a pretty uh, you're at a pretty good site.
1: Yeah, we love Tenure a lot. Oh um, yeah,
3: Tenure. Yep.
1: Yeah, and we used to have uh, Tommy Tomlinson on when he wrote, wrote there. Um, uh, but yeah, it's it's been and uh, Will Leach is there as well, I believe. Uh, no, yep. Yeah, yeah. So lots yep. of lots of guys. So we really enjoy that. I, I said in your bio too that you do a lot of long form stuff. That seems like kind of a catchword uh, in sports journalism and journalism the last couple of years. Tell me what you like about doing the long form stuff and how you think it's kind of grown in popularity over the last year or maybe even two. Well,
3: the thing that I like about it the most is uh, the way you get to sit and think and work and dig and uh, really get to know the people that you're working out and then working uh writing about as opposed to you know I, I got a buddy who covers uh, one of the professional baseball teams and he told me that last year he had twelve hundred bylines. If you're if you have twelve hundred bylines in one year, I can guarantee you eleven hundred and ninety five of them are gonna suck.
0: Right. Uh,
3: so being able to spend a week or two weeks or a month on a piece, uh, it's, it's, I don't want to say relaxing because it's so stressful, but it's just, it's much more rewarding to do that for me.
1: Now we're going to talk a lot about the Daytona 500 and, and kind of your coverage there. Do you, do you have a preference of like covering a sporting event like that or kind of sticking your teeth in and going reporter mode and doing a more long form type of a thing like that, or it's kind of like you just I, like I, the freedom to do both or?
3: Yeah, I like the freedom to do both. Uh, if I got to, if I had to choose between covering events and doing long form, I would do, do long form. There's, there's no doubt. But uh, it's a lot of fun to go to, you know, a, a big event like the Daytona 500 or the playoffs or the Super Bowl or the World Series. Uh, just sort of the c and v scene. You know, it's the thing. The thing that I don't like about covering stuff like that is there's basically no way to write anything that a thousand other people aren't going to write. Uh, you know, Dan Wetzel has, uh, is a, is the you know the one uh, exception to that. I would say that he has uh, the unique ability to find a story and write it back data that nobody else has. But uh, I have not quite, frankly, figured it out. I try to copy him as much as I can. Yeah. But I haven't figured out exactly how he does it yet. Yeah, he... actually, I, I, I sat next to him at a game, a Michigan Ohio State game. I and it was I think it was after he wrote a story. I think it was out of the Rose Bowl when. Uh, when Colt McCoy hurt his shoulder, remember that game?
1: Yep, against and, uh, Alabama, right?
3: Yeah, and Wetzel wrote this incredible uh, piece of reporting that day, and I remember I sat next and said, how the heck did you do that? So uh, that's, that's the one downside about coming to the events.
1: Yeah, the one that I remember from Wetzel, not to make this about him, but is uh, after the last uh, Patriots and Giants Super Bowl, yep. he wrote an amazing piece on kind of Brady and, and his reaction to it all on it's one of the better things I've read since we've been doing this show. We have Jeff Passan on all the time, who um, who wrote a book with him too, "Death to the BCS," which is which is pretty good too. I always wonder, you know, it's a weird thing about those books with multiple authors. You never quite know who you're reading, but <laughs>
3: yeah, you actually
1: looks right right. Uh, but anyway, uh, so I, I've been to Daytona one time, and it was for the July version of the event. It was still the Pepsi mm-hmm. then. I think it's Coke now, right? They may have switched soft drinks on me. Uh, And that's going back a while,
3: though. You're you're going old school.
1: Yeah, I think it was uh, '94, '95, something like that. I was young when I was uh, in high school. I used to always go on these vacations with my uncle, and he would take me somewhere I would want to go in exchange to go to a NASCAR race with him, which really wasn't that bad of a deal for me either. Like you know, like I, I always enjoyed that part of it as well. So I think we went down to Florida, and maybe. Did some amusement parks and then we and, – and the thing that sticks out the most about it in my mind is that it was the first ever rain-shortened July version of the race. And uh, for some reason ever since then, I guess personal experience, I always think about the outside factors at Daytona and the last few years it seems like NASCAR's had had some, some bad luck. I remember the one year there was like a pothole they couldn't fix. Yep. And that kind That's of right, and that kind of ruined the day there, and I don't know, I feel like the last couple of years maybe the weather's been a bigger issue, and it just seemed like such a miserable day last week until all of a sudden this was restarting at eight thirty and was kind of on prime time instead and under the lights, and I thought it just brought such an extra cool element and I guess this is a long way to ask you if you think that they'd ever consider making this. This a night race, and uh, if if maybe as the day played out, if if they thought maybe wow, maybe this works out better, or if you think that they are happy with it being the day race, and that's just always going to be what it what it's going to be.
3: That's a good question. Uh, I, I they've sort of been in between uh, on that issue. Uh, the first one I covered was two thousand and four, and that was just like this weekend, started at you know one o'clock or one thirty, and. Uh, over the years, NASCAR made a move to try to get more races in prime time, and the Daytona 500 has never been a night race. And you know, to the extent that it starts, you know, at, in the evening, but it used, but for several years there, it started at uh, you know four or five o'clock in the afternoon, so that it would uh, automatically finish under the lights. Uh, but they have, I don't think they liked the ratings that they were getting for that across the board. That they thought maybe the night ratings weren't as good as they hoped. Um, so a couple of years ago, maybe two or three years ago now, I can't remember exactly when, but they, they moved the starting time back to one o'clock, uh, to try to make it, you know, the more traditional starting time. And, uh, you know, my hope is that they keep doing that. Um, you know, because to me, that just makes more sense. It's, you should either have a night race or a day race. You shouldn't try to do it in between. Right. Uh, I'll be curious. I haven't seen any ratings uh, from this and I don't know if you could take any lessons, from rain from a, a race that wasn't supposed to start at night, but certainly uh, that the six hour rain delay made it an absolutely spectacular event. I thought that if you, you know, if, if you started watching the race at whatever time that restarted, started, eight 30 or whatever it was, and you watch from then on, that was one of the best Daytona 500 you will ever see. I was in the media center and they have uh, like the scoring monitors and I was I was keeping track of how many cars were within one second of the lead. And for most of the night, it was 20 to 24. Wow. That is, that is ridiculous. How And I said something in the story that's either breathtaking or stupid or breathtakingly stupid, one of those three. Uh, and you, you just you can't – that kind of racing, frankly, just kind of happens. I think people – some of the drivers' maybe were a little worried that the rain was going to come, so they wanted to be as far up as they could be in case it did or it could be their cars were handling really well because of the, the cooler temperatures. I don't frankly know exactly why that was happening. But in terms of an event, yeah, the, the rain helped it, there's no doubt. Plus, I mean, frankly, Dale Jr. winning for NASCAR. Dale Jr. could win the worst race ever, and it's a win for NASCAR.
1: It was such an interesting day how the buzz about the race kind of built. To be honest, I thought that initially the timing of it was so bad being basically the day after the Olympics. felt like the Olympics are crowding up, the sports landscape so much and then some other things kind of dropped in. It was almost like it was so. It felt so backburned this year. Then the day starts and you get the delay and Fox decides to air last year's and apparently fools 60% of the country. And the, I, I, I don't know if you realize this being there or not, but it got going kind of around, the, around Twitter about how many people were fooled and how many people – there were people tweeting – at the announcer for incorrectly announcing how many times Jimmy Johnson had won the championship and getting real aggravated about that. There was feminist groups tweeting about how amazing Danica Patrick was doing for women in auto racing and what a great day it was for women in sports. And it, it turned into this big joke that just kind of kept building and building over the course of the day. And then when the race restarted, there was pretty much nothing else going on in sports at that time, and it's almost like they got their uh, their kind of an ex- this exclusive window. And then, like you said, with it being so exciting, they couldn't have kind of uh, featured a better a better better race if they if they planned it. And I haven't seen the ratings either. I don't know. It's just my Twitter feed, but it seemed like there was a lot of people maybe watching more than would have been earlier. And the other thing, as you mentioned, with such big stars kind of being uh, at the forefront during it is, is so big too, because so many racers in the field. And and at Daytona, sometimes it can happen too. So an obscure driver can win that thing, and I'm sure they'd much rather be sending Dale Earnhardt to uh, to to Jim, uh, to David Letterman as opposed to you know a rookie or something like that.
3: Right. Yeah, and you touched on a little bit of what one of the things that I love so much about writing about NASCAR is, you know, all those tweets uh, about you know people watching last year's race thinking they were watching this year's race, and then a couple of years ago you had the pothole, a couple of years after that you had the exploding jet car. Uh, the crazy things that happen in that in and around NASCAR will never cease fascinating me. The, the fans. The spectacle, the just the weirdness of the whole sport—it just it gives you things to watch and think about and laugh about that you just don't you just don't get with every other sport. That uh, I mean, I, I like cars driving around in circles. I do like the the uh, the events uh, themselves, but I like the whole uh, you know, Lollapalooza meets a circus meets a carnival meets you know a, a you know a gossipy high school clique. Uh, that's that's what fascinates
1: me about the sport. One thing that kind of I was a little concerned about with NASCAR, I I had this thought a few years ago, right around the time of the recession. I I thought, I wonder if NASCAR is going to turn into. A rich get richer sport in the sense that the bigger teams are going to really dominate this thing because there's going to be less money to go around for sponsors and it's a very expensive uh, sport to field a team. I don't think people realize, casual fans certainly maybe don't realize how much goes into getting a car on the track. Uh, and I think we've seen it to some degree, but maybe not as much as I think. What is your feeling about the economics of the sport right now and kind of how the the wealth is shared? And is seeing a thing like three Hendricks teams in the top five at this race, is that a concern for what I'm saying? Maybe uh, taking a greater life this year? Or is that just uh, they have drivers that tend to excel at that track? Or, uh and Jimmy Johnson, the way he's kind of dominated the support recently, maybe can, can back up my statement a little bit, but what do you think about economics and the way that plays into NASCAR, uh, these last five years and going forward?
3: Well, there's been a couple of things. That's a good question. And frankly, it's one of the most important questions NASCAR faces. Uh, I don't happen to share concern of people who say, uh, only the good teams can survive. Well, duh, that's because they're the good teams. You know what I mean? and, Uh, It doesn't bother me if uh, one team wants to spend a whole heck of a lot more money than another uh, to get faster, uh, because then, you know, the other team can do that too if they want. Uh, There are a handful of probably four or five, uh, you know, super teams that represent 20 teams in the sport that can spend a a lot of money to make their cars faster. And if we're talking about a competition between 20 uh, really, really well funded teams, that pretty much ends the conversation about whether that's good for the sport because it obviously is. Um, you know that wasn't true in the seventies. It wasn't true in the eighties. In those years, you had a handful of teams who were competitive, and if you have twenty that are competitive, uh, you're doing pretty good. Uh, a couple of things happened over the last ten years. Uh, the sport got way too uh, expensive for small teams to keep up, so they went away. That did happen. But that, frankly, that's the way capitalism works. If you can't, you know, if you can't keep up. Uh, you can't keep up that's that's just the way that that's just the way the world works um you know you would hear stories about uh you know teams that had you know ringers on the pit crew where they all they did was fly in on race day uh work on the pit crew and fly out and they were making six figures and I'm not sure that that's going on quite so much anymore uh but certainly the the rich are gonna stay rich and get better. Oh,
1: my dog disagreed with that point, but that's okay. Go ahead.
3: <laughs> you know, and, and uh, you know, it's funny that you, your dog starts starts barking because there, there's also a, you know, the thing that concerns me more is that you could, if a dog had enough money, it could buy its way into it. You know what I mean? That right. The idea that a young kid is going to drive be the the best young driver and drive his way uh, up each series and become the star, that's just not going to happen. You have to come with your own money. Uh, and even at, at the lower levels, guys are buying, basically, seat time. They're paying the team to allow them to drive the car. And that's a concern uh, to the extent that that doesn't mean that that driver is any good. If that driver is good, then who cares? Uh, the problem is, uh, quite often, somebody, pay- somebody who doesn't really belong talent-wise uh, because he's got money, is buying a seat and taking it from uh, a talented kid who just needs a chance. Now that, that's, I don't see that going away, and so long as there's enough of a leading system that you're not buying your way in to an elite car and then causing big problems, I think that's okay. A
1: couple things that I thought of while you are while you're saying that is, you know, it's not unique to NASCAR. Just about in every sport, there's the richer teams and the lesser teams, you know. Uh, there's a New York Yankees and a Tampa Bay Rays that compete in the same division in Major League Baseball with very different uh, different financial structures. And some sports have done things to try to close those gaps, like salary caps and luxury taxes and things like that. Is that anything that NASCAR has ever considered? Now, if you're saying there's 20 competitive teams, probably don't need to worry about it. 20 more than enough. But was has, there, has that ever been a consideration for them?
3: Yeah, the closest thing NASCAR has done related to that was Boy, eight or nine years ago now, they put a cap on the number of teams each organization can field, and they capped it at four. So Hendrick Motorsports has four cars right now. Uh, they're not allowed to have five, and uh, I'm not sure that that there was a point where that that rule might have been necessary. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it is anymore because I don't think anybody's gonna would feel five teams because people are having a hard enough time feeling four. But when the sport was really humming, I think NASCAR was worried that there was going to be three or four teams with five cars. And then it was going to be, and then they were all going to be competing against each other. And, you know, that, that starts to raise some, you know, some integrity of the sport issues. If you have too many cars, These guys who are teammates with other cars on the, on the track, but in terms of like a salary cap or anything, uh, NASCAR has never done that, and I, I don't think he ever will, and there's a couple of reasons why. Uh, the, the big one would be, it would be all, the two big ones would be, one, it would be basically impossible to police because these teams are so huge and they have so many people working for them, and it would be it's almost impossible to say, okay, Jeff Gordon's car costs $50 million and Jimmy Johnson's cost sixty five, and some of those guys work on both teams, well, who do they work for, who do they right. not work for, questions like that. Plus, I I think also, if you look at Jimmy Johnson as an example, he's got Lowe's as his sponsor. Uh, And because he's Jimmy Johnson, because they are Lowe's, that that allows Jimmy Johnson to ask Lowe's for more money than just some schlub would. So you can't, and so therefore he has more money to spend because Lowe's is giving it to him. Well, that's a value that he brings to Lowe's. You can't really, you can't say, well, you can't use that money or you can't cap that, that's, that's part of the sport is the ability to attract big dollar sponsors. That's a fundamental part of the sport. And to put a cap on that would be would really be altering the way the whole economic system works.
1: The Sportscaster is catching up with Matt Crossman, who we first met when he was back at Sporting News, writing for Sports on Earth and some other places you can find him at on Twitter at MattCrossman underscore. Uh, one kind of bigger thing I wanted to talk to you about before we let you go is Dale Earnhardt Jr. And uh, he he won his second Daytona, I think, uh, ten maybe ten years apart, and I think he's. I think I heard what was that he's maybe won five of the last six seasons without a win, and there's been some changes to the way they're scoring. Uh, the chase this year almost somewhat guaranteeing, but not quite. Uh, if you win a race, you're going to be in the chase. So I, I know that Dale Earnhardt Jr. Regardless of where he is standings wise, is the most one of the, if not the most important one of the most important drivers for NASCAR. Uh, how does this win kind of? Uh, impact the sport for Dale Earnhardt Jr. himself, uh, getting his first uh, big win like this in 10 years, and how does it impact the sport having a marquee name uh, clearly now going to be a prominent part in their season as it it's a long one as it goes from now until, what, November?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think it's both really, really important and really not all that important at all. Uh, certainly short-term uh, headlines, um, a week worth of publicity NASCAR one Sunday NASCAR one Monday uh, you know, because everybody knows who Dale jr is. You know, there's two, two or three or four drivers. who I think if you ask general sports fans, uh, you show them their picture, they would know who it is. Dale jr. And Danica are number one and number two. And it, it falls off pretty, pretty uh, steeply after that.
1: Would you say Jeff Gordon and Jimmy Johnson would probably be the next two?
3: I don't I, I think Jeff Gordon would be up there. I don't think I think Jimmy Johnson is far enough down that I don't think you'd put him in Jeff Gordon's category. I could be wrong gotcha. there. Okay. And it, Interesting. It's, it's been a while since I've it's been a while since I've seen uh like the Davy Brown index numbers, but the last time I looked, Johnson had won I think he had won four or five titles and he was not he was not among the most recognizable. He wasn't in the top two or three. Hmm. Uh, so so, you know, but, you know, in in June, will people remember that Dale Earnhardt Jr. won the Daytona 500 this year? Maybe. Will they still have strong feelings about NASCAR because of that? No. So, you know, NASCAR won this week. Uh, it's huge. It's absolutely huge for Dale Jr., though, because like you said, it gets him... Uh, it, it virtually guarantees he's going to make, make the chase. Uh, you know, if 17 guys get a win, then he'd have to be among the top 16 in points. Well, there's There's frankly, there's no chance that he's not going to do that. So I think he can say it guarantees his spot in the postseason. Uh, You know, winning the Daytona 500 is a career achievement. And and to have done it twice, he joined an elite group of drivers. And for him in particular, uh, his confidence was so bad for so long, and now it's so high, that winning the Daytona 500, it, it propels him into the top two or three candidates to win the championship. You would have thought maybe he's in the four or five, uh but not that win once he gets it uh, i mean he could have a, he's I, I wrote a profile of him for sports on earth before he he won it and now that he's won it i think he's probably for a career year
1: well, last thing i want to ask you just i don't know how many we mentioned jeff gordon and he is such a a crossover figure for the sport especially when he started racing uh, just really different, I think, profile-wise into the mainstream than a lot of the drivers that had had success in the sport previous to him. He's obviously getting closer and closer to the end of what's been a first ballot Hall of Fame career, no matter how you look at it. Uh, when you think about uh, legacy, is there anything else he needs to do on the track, or is he kind of just uh, like a Derek Jeter-type kind of taking a victory lap. I mean, I know Derek Jeter specifically said this in my last year. I don't think Jeff Gordon said that. He might do 10 more years. I, I don't know. It's, uh, But uh, is there anything specifically he needs to do legacy-wise, or is he kind of just,
3: it's all gravy
1: from here for him?
3: That's a good question. I've never thought about that. Um, certainly, uh, first bat Hall of Famer, absolutely. Top, That's a five driver, all-time, absolutely. Uh, what's interesting about him is he screwed up his own legacy by hiring Jimmy Johnson. That if you go back back to 2001, uh, Gordon had just won his fourth championship in five years or six years, or whatever it was. Uh, And it was absolutely on pace to be mentioned in the same breath as Dale Earnhardt and Richard Petty. He hires Jimmy Johnson. uh, has a couple of just kind of okay seasons. Gordon does. uh, Certainly not bad. And, but then Johnson just absolutely takes off because Gordon took him into the sport. And now Jimmy has won six championships surpass surpassing Gordon's title uh, uh title hall of four, uh, and is will probably arguably end up with as many wins as Gordon too. And so Gordon, I mean, this was his sport. And then now it's Johnson's in terms of who's the best driver. I think Jimmy has surpassed him on almost every level. Uh, the thing that jobs or that Gordon has going for him is he is a much more iconic figure outside the sport than Jimmy is or ever will be. but uh, within the sport, Johnson has surpassed him. And I don't think unless Gordon peels off two or three championships, which that's not a realistic expectation, I think he, he I don't know that he, I don't know that you would say that he had a down second half of his career because I'm not sure that's quite so fair but certainly his post-2001 career has not turned out as he as you would have guessed it would at the end of the 2001 season.
1: Right, yeah. yeah but, I mean, like you said, multiple championships. I, I yeah. wonder, did, did, do supporters of him ever say, you know, really the numbers should be more? I, I'm almost certain either the first or second year of the chase, if there wasn't a chase, he would have been the winner. Um, yeah, there's a couple years that he would have A couple years, the, that the couple years the like that, right? Is Is that something yeah. that people... Maybe throw people into the don't, I don't argument. People,
3: I don't think. No, I don't no. think people fix it in that anymore. Uh, that could have, would have, should have. I mean, the simple fact is the championship was the way it was, and he didn't win it. Right. But it, it, I think with the 2007 season, if you look at the 2007 season, this is what people don't remember and that he won't get credit for. That does make his legacy not what it could be. Uh, he had in '97 and '98. He was so good. He won 11-year races, one year and 10 the other. Just two of the most dominant seasons anybody has ever had. And then in 2007, he basically replicated that. I mean, he averaged almost the top five through the whole season. He had like 30 top 10s, or 31. It's ridiculous. It's the best. It's probably the most consistent season. When you think about if top 10s are the measure, it's the most consistent season in the history of the sport. 31 top 10s, he still didn't win the championship. Because uh Johnson beat him in the chase, and it's there's basically two seasons that had he won that championship, this conversation would be completely different, but he didn't, so uh yes, still one of the all time greats, but uh Johnson is knocking him down the back,
1: well, like we said, Mike, my- Matt Crossman uh, writes for Sports on Earth, uh, also SP Nation long Longform, Charlotte Magazine, and some other places. You can find him on Twitter. He's at Matt Crossman underscore. Anything else you wanted to let our readers know? Anywhere else you wanted to direct them or anything like that?
3: I'm uh, working on a, a couple of things for uh, Bleacher Report too. They've been uh,
1: Bleacher Report, uh, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. They, they've been uh, exploring, you know, big time journalism there after you know getting getting their feet wet uh, or you know starting out as a company, I should say. Uh, you know, with a lot of slideshows and stuff like that that people say, and they're doing. They've, they've hired a lot of big names in the last six or eight or ten months, and uh, I've been writing some long-form stuff for them. And uh, you know, a, a collection of my work, for lack of a better way to put it, is at mattcrossman dot com.
1: Awesome! Thank you so much. Really appreciate the time. It's great catching up. Good conversation, and too I, I
3: appreciate it. Oh yeah! Thanks for having me on.
1: All right, I want to thank Matt Crossman for being on the podcast today. Really appreciate that. I want to thank Joe Esposito for writing such a great opening song to our segment, The Greatest of All Time. Took a break on our last episode. Don't think we did it. Well, it's been a few weeks, and uh, we got three each here for you. Uh, Don, kick us off.
2: All right, my first one, and I, th- I think I feel pretty strong about this, and that sentence doesn't <laughs> convey that, I suppose, but... I couldn't think of a great way to describe it. Like, my first thought was the best white trash food, but that's not a very sensitive way to put it. So, like, the best cheap food, dorm food might be a good way to put it, like college food or bachelor pad food of all time is Velveeta shells and cheese. Or really any shells and cheese, but the Velveeta is, like, the cream of the crop. If you've got a couple extra bucks and you don't want the generic store brand shells and cheese, go with the Velveeta. But yeah, Velveeta is very good. Best... Uh, Bachelor slash dorm slash cheap food of all time. Biggest competition has got to be
1: the ramen noodles, right? I mean, that's the go-to in that As far as,
2: like, yeah, popular vote. how
1: good is it, though? I
2: I used to eat a lot of them. I don't eat them much anymore. They're super salty. but uh, they are very salty. I would eat them, like, as soup, or sometimes I would drain all the soup out of it and just kind of put the stuff in and be stronger, but just noodles. I do appreciate the ramen noodles, too, but I haven't had them probably in years. All right, I got a fun one here. I've been thinking about
1: this all week. It actually came about on the weekend. I was thinking about Lane Staley and Alison Chains. I was watching that metal show. That's what it was. Okay, and they do this top five list, and it was like top five people they'd love to have on that metal show. And yep. one of them put Jerry Cantrell on there. Okay, and uh, Alison Chain's tour is still. And I've always said to myself, you know, I don't want to see that because I've. I, I don't think I care without Alice Chains but the unique thing about them is Jerry Cantrell sang a lot in the band
2: he did a lot he did all the harmony
1: he, he did it but he sang some lead as well and okay. I was thinking how yeah there'd be some songs that are like uh heaven beside you is an example of pretty much completely sung by um Lane, Lane Staley no Jerry Cantrell by Jerry Cantrell oh okay and then uh maybe Wood no Wood has a lot of Jerry What will be uh uh, again, would be a version, a song that is pretty much all Lane Staley.
2: Rooster was all Lane Staley, right?
1: Right, yeah. Uh, wo- um, th- them Bones. Uh, there, there's a lot of them that are Lane Staley's lead singer, right, obviously. Right. Uh, but So I was thinking the, one, the song I love to hear the most, I think I hope they do it, is Don't Follow. Which, yeah, yeah. Even though it sounds like it had to have been written by Lane Staley, it was actually written by Cantrell. And really, I always think about this song because the only part that Lane Staley sings is the bridge. So it got me to thinking, what's the greatest bridge of all time? And I got it down to three and we were joking about this before. I said, we have to have Mrs. Castor, who's a music teacher, listen to this because one, two or three of these might not be bridges. <laughs> in my limited expertise in music, I'm pretty sure they are. And I. If I'm wrong about the Alice in Chains one, it's because the, the biographer who wrote Grunge is Dead uh, and wrote in there uh, what I just said, that the only Pirate Lane Staley sings in that song is the bridge. He's wrong about that one. Oh, really? Yeah. So it wouldn't be me wrong about now, that now, particular one. I think. So I'm going to play three bridges and declare one the greatest of all time. Yeah. How, How just, do you want to do this? You want to try to guess? You want to try to well, rank them
2: after? I'll rank them after, but I'm just going to throw like my foot in my mouth, too. Uh because we'll, this would be the thing that we get email about right yeah how not bridges yeah right yeah well I believe a bridge joins two choruses so like you usually get like verse chorus verse chorus bridge chorus something like that i okay I think that's how that works because anything that anything between the choruses would be a, a another verse, verse I think okay but so that, this is where we'll get the email right us how so someone
1: will have to clear this out but I believe this is my third-ranked greatest bridge of all time, which might not be a bridge based on your explanation because I'm not sure there's a chorus after it, but maybe. We'll see. Oops, hold on. Yep. Oh, pause. Sorry. Oh, Don's trying to ruin it. Yep. All right. Here we go. I better back it up a couple seconds. All right. Here we go. (laughs) The Mighty Guns N' Roses with Patience here. This, I believe, would be a chorus right here. And here comes Axel Rose with the bridge, I hope. So, there is no chorus at the end of that.
2: Yeah, we gotta keep in mind, I can be totally wrong about that. So, while you're playing the next one, I'll actually uh, Google, all right, Google so what a bridge is.
1: My number two was the Allison Chains one mentioned. I would highly recommend, if you know anything about Allison Chains and Lane Staley, that you read what he just sang and think about his life. And I, I dare you not to get chills.
2: That's the part I can't believe when you said it wasn't written by Lane Staley. No, this one's written by Ken yeah. Charles, so who knows, maybe he wrote it about his
1: friend. And based on your definition,
2: which is probably wrong.
1: This would be the one I'm most rock solid about. And not only do I think it's my favorite bridge of by the greatest bridge of all time. Probably be the second greatest part of a song. If I had a greatest part in a song of all time, this would finish second. <laughs> That definitely, by your definition, is a bridge because we went chorus, solo, bridge, yeah. chorus there, right? I think so. But maybe the most misheard Pro Jam lyric, it's everything has chains, not everything has changed. Everything has chains, absolutely, absolutely nothing nothing's changed. changed. Right. Uh, just unbelievable music, lyrics, emotion, unbelievable live. Just everything about that is great. Pearl Jam Corduroy, the greatest bridge of all time. So did you find any information on the internet about what they say a bridges?
2: I if the first thing that it pops up is a Wikipedia article that doesn't clarify it for me any better. But let me see here. Song structure. Uh where did it go? Oh, the damn Well, we will have to have Mrs. Caster solve the mystery. Play those first. Wait, us. here it is. Oh. In music theory the bridge refers to the section of a song which has a different, significantly different melody from the rest of the song. That's, that's a pretty easy definition. I think everything in there works. I
1: think those three work if that's the definition, I think.
2: Usually after the second chorus in a song. Hmm. Typically a song consists of verse, pre-chorus, chorus, second verse, pre-chorus, chorus, middle eight, which is the bridge, chorus. So that kind of fits both. Are, we both might actually be right, which would be a goddamn miracle. <laughs> that would be,
1: especially <laughs> considering our limited uh, music knowledge. But we will get an expert to rule on that. We will have, if, even if we have to call her and bring her on. <laughs> that's even an option. Should we Skype Mrs. Castor in right now?
2: Oh, I. Th- that'd be a disaster doing it without her knowing about it. I bet. With the uh, the little one would running around, screaming. it be a fun screaming. disaster? I I don't know if it'd be fun for the audience <laughs> <laughs>
1: all right well we'll uh, we'll find out and we'll get back to that one so that was my number one which means it's time for your number two
2: all right my second one uh i wrote these a while back and we didn't do a greatest of all time and this one's kind of generic but whatever i'm going to stick with it the problem with this one we talked about is there just might not be any disputing it as an american citizen but the greatest winter olympic moment of all time has to be the 1980 miracle on ice uh i can't think of anything else
1: yeah, the only other thing that came to mind was Peter Forsberg's shootout goal that became a stamp and won gold for Sweden in 1994. But
2: Sure, and in Sweden, that's probably their, they would their probably answer to that. that but right. I, I can't think of anything close from an American Certainly standpoint. what I would say. So, yeah, kind of boring, but it fit, it fit the uh, the sporting world at the time. We talked about Breaking
1: Bad a lot on this show over the summer, and since then, a lot of people, I think, have been wondering what might be the next show that captures this all and it seems like true detective and hbo has done that quite a bit there's a lot of buzz for this show on twitter and people who like tv love this show and i i watched who's I'm in a, it i'm up to date woody harrelson and uh matthew mcconaughey are the stars oh yeah.
2: some gorgeous girl is in it too right Yo, like, Mary... i I've
1: heard a lot about that I think, yeah and more and than the gorgeous story. nudity
2: as well yeah,
1: The interesting thing is it's an anthology type of show and it's been renewed for season two. But apparently the way it works, there's going to be a new director and new characters and a new story. Huh. So
2: I haven't watched The Wire yet, but is that kind of how that works, or do they keep the characters from season to season?
1: There's characters that lap over, but it's similar to that, and that leads me to... My thought was the greatest television show about cops, watching a cop show, okay, and it's The Wire. I mean, The Wire it could very easily be my greatest television show of all time, so if I'm narrowing it down to cops, that would certainly be the choice. But I know there's a lot of cop shows that have obviously aired, and there might be some people who maybe swear by NYPD Blue or... There's a lot of them, obviously, but uh, The Wire for me is the greatest television show about cops of all time. And if you haven't seen True Detective yet and you're looking for something, I recommend it. It's only going to be eight episodes. I think they've aired six. So uh, really, really great television, though.
2: Well, that fits my last category uh, perfectly. I haven't watched it, but if I do, I will probably binge-watch it. And my greatest show of all time to binge-watch... And boy, I had three of them here. And they're all for different reasons. I'm gonna say Firefly is the greatest show of all time to binge watch. A it's one season long. Uh so that might actually be a strike against it. It's just really easy to watch in one session and then watch the movie. Uh the only thing the only problem with binge watching is that it's it's over and then you're gonna be sad that it's over. Uh Breaking Bad, I I binge watched, and I remember binge watching it thinking, I can't believe like Like, that's that's a heavy show. And, like, you're emotionally invested in these characters. And then it's, like, a season ends or a character dies or whatever. And you're like, holy cow. And then you think, some people had to sit with this for, like, a week or an entire off-season, whatever they call it. Like, summer, when it wasn't on. And I just remember thinking, wow, that's... I'm glad I'm not one of those people. Because I feel emotionally enough invested in this show just having watched three episodes a day for a couple weeks or whatever. But that's a good reason to binge watch that one. Uh, I mean you have to now obviously. The other one is The Walking Dead and I know it's the biggest show on TV right now and I have mixed feelings about it. It's it's nowhere near the Firefly, Breaking Bad, Sopranos, The Wire. The, it's not in that class. I'm sure some people would tell you it is, but I just don't think the story is that good. But that's part of the reason why it's great to binge watch. I caught up with it I think midway through the second season and everyone will tell you the second season is long and boring and they're just on this farm. So binge-watching it is perfect because otherwise it's going to feel like they're on the freaking farm forever, and it's going to be really slow. And I feel like that's happened a little bit again this season, but, again, some people would tell you it's it's still great. I don't know.
1: Based on your Firefly thing, I was thinking about this, and Freaks and Geeks might be one I would nominate as a great one to binge-watch. still have watch. to watch that. That's on Netflix too. Yeah, and
2: it's one season,
1: and every episode is good, and it's not too heavy. It plays well one after the other. Yep. Another thing I was thinking is binge watching might be best for shows that start slow because maybe you wouldn't, when you're watching it, from week to week, if it's slow and somewhat boring, you might drop. Right. And then, so this might be, so a show like breaking bad and the wire were both really good for binge watching. Cause they kind of start slow for different reasons.
2: Yeah. I, but, I binge watched the Sopranos too. And I don't know if that's a good example for this. I, They had
1: such a great first season, The Sopranos.
2: Yeah, and I just recently kind of binged watch Orange is the New Black. It's only one season long as of now, but uh, I don't feel like I needed to. Like, I feel like I could have taken the time off. With some of those shows, like The Wire might benefit from it too because I think it's easy to get overwhelmed. You watch one episode and you might feel like you already forgot from week to week who all the characters were. So if you binge watch two or three of them in a row which I'm sure I'll end up doing. I know I'll watch that someday. I watched three episodes, and I think the problem was waiting for Mrs. Caster. so maybe I'll just watch it without her.
1: All right, uh, with the launch of the WWE Network, and they did suck me in. I am a customer, at least for the first six month Guarantee I had to make them or whatever. We'll see what happens. Might be the end of me buying their DVDs, though. There might be no need to do that with the incredible library that they're already presenting and we will be building on it each day. So it made me say, "What is the greatest wrestling DVD of all time?" My is, link is
2: this easy to guess for anyone that's listened to the podcast. Yes, okay. <laughs>
1: uh, it's maybe my link. Uh, my link to the, the sports entertainment for the last ten years has been these DVDs, and I thought about the best of Saturday Night's main event for this. I thought about the first Bret Hart DVD because it was kind of the first time he went on the record about a lot of stuff. Mm. But I settled on WrestleMania 3 Deluxe Edition. It's a two-disc WrestleMania 3 set. Disc one is just the regular broadcast, and disc two is WrestleMania 3 presented pop-up video style.
2: Oh, really? Yeah, that's pretty cool. With
1: uh, many other extras, including the Battle Royal on Saturday Night's main event uh, that led in as part of the build-up to WrestleMania 3. The one disappointment about it when it came out was the. Everyone said that whole Saturday Night's Main Event was going to be on as one of the extras. And it was just the Battle royal. Oh. They should have put the whole Saturday Night's Main Event on. But WrestleMania 3 Deluxe Edition, the greatest WWE DVD of all time. Uh, the greatest television show about cops of all time, The Wire. And hopefully the greatest bridge of all time is
2: Pearl Jam's Corduroy. <laughs> I think our definition said that it is, or at least qualifies. Uh, best show to binge watch of all time, Firefly. The best Olympic moment is the 1980 Miracle on Ice. And the best college dorm bachelor food is Velveeta shells and cheese. We'll be right back with Anthony Demoro.
1: Our next guest is in Miami, Florida, sort of a renaissance man of the 21st century, has a website, sportsrants.com. You can also find him on Twitter. Uh, We'll talk about all that stuff. He's also in marketing and sales and all over the internet and social media. He's going to join us, talk a little bit about some of the unique things that the WWE is doing that we've talked about. He's making his first appearance on the Sportscasters today. We really appreciate that. His name is Anthony DeMoro. How's it going today, Anthony? Hey, Steve. I'm doing well. How about you? Very good. I was thinking into that intro. I should have made sure that it's DeMauro. uh <laughs> it, I should have checked with you on that. And then I said, well, I'm a good Italian boy, so I'm just going to have to risk it. So <laughs> You got it right. All right, good. You got it right. Uh I was just sitting around last night, I guess. Uh, we've been following each other on Twitter last year or so. We talk now and again about you know the random things people talk about on Twitter. I noticed you had posted a, a, a blog, I guess, about the, the unique things that the WWE had done yesterday. And it's something we actually had talked about the network launching on the show a few weeks ago and how the other sports might be kind of looking in on, on that and, and seeing what kind of success – the WWE has on that, because as much, you know, people can get on the WWE at times about being fake, and that's obviously true, and, you know, being scripted, and there's no arguing those things, but they have been extremely innovative over the years, and pay-per-view is a very easy thing to look at, I mean, they were one of the first people to get out there on pay-per-view, and boxing, is and UFC, and things like that, basically their sport's built around it, and now they're gonna, they've already been dropped by Dish Network, and We'll get into these things, but you wrote a really interesting blog about how you thought they kind of fell short a little bit on launch, and it was interesting to me because when I seen the title of it, it this is after like two hours of basically uh, gushing over what I had seen on the uh, on the uh, on the network, and then kind of having the two really incredible moments on Raw. You know, what? this is a lot of me and not enough you yet, but uh, mm-hmm. the, a little bit of background necessary. The kind of fan I am, wrestling fan, I was. The biggest. Fa- I was seven years old, uh, six years old, going on seven. The day of WrestleMania three. That's the biggest day of my childhood, and I don't think I've watched a WrestleMania since I went to the one in Toronto with the uh, Rock and Hogan. Was that nineteen eighteen? But yet, all through those, <laughs> all through those years, they've been able to keep me sucked in because I have such a strong connection with the years that I was a fan. I will buy it repackaged on DVD, and I was a member of their. Their subscription things that they've had in the past. And so, I, I'm, 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 I'm the, you know, they suck me in with nostalgia and they had me big time yesterday. Uh, but then I read your blog and I did kind of agree with you. So, why don't you talk a little bit about what you wrote and why you think they fell a little bit short yesterday as finally we get to you and, and not me. Sorry about that. But.
4: <laughs> you know what, Steve? You brought up a great point. And that's exactly why, why I'm a fan as well. My earliest memories are um, being about. I don't know, six, seven, eight years old, and my father, who's an entrepreneur as well, um, renting me the Coliseum Home Videos, Lord Alfred Hayes introducing all of the WrestleManias, all the pay-per-views. I remember uh, one of the earliest VHSs, this is just dating me a bit, but uh, VHSs we ever bought, one of the first matches I ever saw was... um, jake roberts versus the model rick martell in a blindfold match WrestleMania Seven, yeah wrestlemania seven and then i started backtracking and i don't know where i was or how relative it was to my age in the time I, I could have been younger when i saw it I could have been older but that was the one that really captured my attention and then i saw a tag team named the rockers and i got obsessed and i got hooked i was a warrior fan i was a hogan a Hulkamaniac. um and then it just carried on and it, i think it's one of those things when you're young and it's embedded in your dna that way it carries over to your adulthood and you know what? I, I, I've you touch on a great point. They are very, very innovative, and I think media and we see with newspapers. They've been really let's take newspapers for example. Um, they're a dying medium, and they've been extremely resistant to get on the social media bandwagon in recent years. Now they finally got on board with this and online content. Been really resistant to it. We radio is another medium. I mean, with the boom of internet radio. I think radio has been a little bit resistant. The WWE, on the other hand, has really since its inception been all based on the fans. I mean, fans dictate their storylines. Fans can share their voice. WWE values it. And they've kind of carried that into the the new century and this new millennium. Now, their first innovation was their tie into social media. And a lot of people don't realize this, that WWE was trends every monday and anything they do i mean if they're having a live event uh they have a pay-per-view going on if it's monday night raw you can look on twitter for instance at any point in time when that's airing live and see about two to three um hashtags related to that pay-per-view or wwe trending and that just goes to show how well they do social media uh they they introduced tout they're a partner with tout and i thought that was very forward thinking and i thought you know the WWE when they were first came up with the concept of the WWE Network, they tried pitching it for the longest time to network and right. uh, cable providers. Mm-hmm. Now they're very resistant to this, and you know what? I give them kudos on this. And you know, Dish Network can sit there and toss a bunch of stones, which I I think, at the grand scheme of things, sounds very childish. Because if you look at the past decade, I remember paying fifty bucks for my uh, you know cable service at the time, and now I'm paying over hundred and fifty dollars. So you seem kind of childish and petty when you know, you're getting your butt whipped by Comcast and Time Warner and you're crapping bricks about that, but you're tossing stones. It just seems childish to me, and I like the WWE for this concept. They didn't just sit there and, and say, all right, we're going to take it, and you know, if the WWE network went to these cable providers, that could have upped yours and my bill. The WWE said, you know what? We have enough in our library, and we see what Netflix has done. We can do this on our own. So I loved that concept. Now, from a media standpoint, they're stellar. They're great. They have a great grasp on uh, what's working, what isn't working. They have a great uh, forthcoming vision on what could be coming down the pike. I think they have a great grasp and understanding and acumen when it comes to social media. And I spent about a decade in social media and SEO, internet marketing, and I've seen a lot of brands struggle with this. And WWE is not one of them. I think they're a leader in this. With that being said, I think they do their fans an incredible disservice because while they've gotten strong in social media and strong in presenting an internet or an online product and a social media product, they've gotten weak in their storyline and delivering. They've deviated from what their brand was built upon, and that is professional wrestling. Now, a lot of people listening right now may be rolling their eyes, oh, it's fake,
1: and you alluded to that. Well. It's
4: fake in a sense. It's scripted. <laughs>
1: <laughs> We're both laughing because we talked about that exact thing before we started. But go ahead. <laughs> Keep going. Colson's just chi- chiming right. in for yeah, us. Yes. Just chiming in. Third time uh, today. <laughs> but,
4: you know, I-, I think they're doing their fans an incredible disservice. And I think as w- it- it's funny to me because they're so in tune with social media and how people interact and being, you know, as I said, they have great foresight with that. But they're lacking in to- tapping into what their brand is built upon, which is giving the fans what they want. And I thought yesterday when they could have hit a – basically it was like T-ball. They had it teed up, and they could have hit a Grand Slam very easily, and I thought they whiffed from the inception of the network. And I don't know about you, Steve. I signed up, and I'm still oh, waiting. I up. I'm still waiting to watch it on Xbox. I, I've not my <laughs> credentials have not been recognized, even though <laughs> I've heard that. Not a, you know, it's right. just ridiculous to me. I paid for six months in advance, and I'm asking where my refund is now. We take all that. I, I understand and trust me. If anybody out there has run a website, launched a website, a blog, or anything online, there are hiccups. Right, the expect. government
1: can attend to that, right? Oh yeah, right, how about um, the hell? <laughs> right. Unlimited resources there, so I mean, yeah, yeah, it happens.
4: It's, it's expected. So. Right you give them a pass on
1: that. Right. But because everywhere doesn't... else. It has seemed to launch. I mean, I checked it works on my PlayStation. Uh, it works on my iPhone and iPad and looks beautiful on my Apple TV. So uh-uh. it, that's oh. where, if you have any of those things, it does look incredible on all of those. So i I'll, it, just as a, a flip side, they did launch very well on those platforms.
4: Yes. Yeah. So, yeah I, I, I would imagine, but I'm so stubborn. I'm like, I want it to work on my damn X. <laughs> you know? You're right. That's so, understand. Yeah. Um, Anyway, uh, basically, is they had a perfect segue into Raw last night. And I thought... Now, let, let me preface it with this. Raw wasn't a bad show at all. But it was a show that was needed weeks ago because since the turn of the year, it has been terrible show after terrible show, booking decision after booking decision. And they have gotten a pass because people are just like, okay, where's the build-up? We're going to get the build-up. Where's the payoff? And last night, there could have been a huge payoff, and they could have walked out with I don't know. I know the demand was huge for the WWE network, but that payoff could have been even bigger. You could have had even more of a buzz building into the next day, and you could have could have more people buying into WrestleMania. Uh, the saving grace with WWE, despite their errors last night, is they're only charging you nine ninety nine or sixty bucks for the next six months to get WrestleMania and all their pay per views. Right? If they didn't have that. I wouldn't be wasting a dime, and I say that understanding that storylines take time to build up but when you show no faith that that's going to happen or that you have any care now i could say they're not listening to fans they know they're aware they're to me what they did last night they don't give a crap about what the fans are saying to them. And they're going to push forward with what they think is right, the heck with anybody thinks, and they're just going to be like, all right, here's WrestleMania, that's it. And I, I thought that was a wrong decision on so many levels. Um... I had a source, a very good source to me. Uh, I don't – he, when he calls me and says something or he texts me and says something, I take it as gospel. He told me about the Batista signing, which I, I kind of – at the time when he told me about it in November, I was like, All right, I'll wait and see mode and it ended up being true. He told me about Kevin Nash and the Royal Rumble. told me about Jake Roberts getting into the Hall of Fame. The sting deal with WWE, despite what you're reading online, is a done deal, 100 percent completed. And anybody out there, I, you know, it's funny to me. You read these dirt sheets or these blogs, or like, oh, they're still on a, you know, it's not a high priority. It's not being, it's being held up. It's not signed yet. I, I point back to that Batista deal. Batista deal was done in September, October. We didn't hear about it until December, January. So, patience, folks. That deal is done. TNA acknowledged yesterday to a fan, and I, I've heard this from other fans as well that sting is no longer with the promotion uh, aside from that wwe creative is already uh, and, and merchandising is already coming up with sting merchandising and that's been reported all over the place where they failed with this is even if you didn't want sting for wrestlemania 30 and you wanted him to take on undertaker at wrestlemania 31 having his presence on raw last night for five seconds sells your WWE network for all the WCW content alone. True. Um, And there's a lot of it there. It's a ton of it. Sting was the face. And I got to give WWE credit. They have been painting Sting pretty beautifully on their website for the past month and a half. So that deal is done. Uh, He's coming to the WWE. It's just a matter of if and when. Lesnar and Taker would have worked swimmingly. And it's probably going to be a solid match this year. It would have worked swimmingly about two years ago when Lesnar first came in and instead went to John Cena. Now, that's where they failed right there. They missed striking when the iron is hot. Uh, it's their hottest angle going into media because everything else to me is lackluster with the side from Cena and Bray Wyatt. Um, that's another one that failed to me.
1: Well, All well, you hang on have- a second. Hang on. What's that? Let's back up a little bit because I feel like when you, were, when you were explaining a lot of what they needed to do last night. I felt like you were almost talking to me directly as the, the kind of fan I am because last mm-hmm. night they have my eyes, right? For, and, they, and they don't have them very often for current things, right? But I've been hearing for years about this network. Uh, I've always wanted to see what they can do with it. Uh, I thought they were very reasonable about the price. They made it available on the platforms. I said, I'm a big Apple guy, and there it is on my Apple TV. They made it so easy, Price, price is reasonable. Uh, I, I sign up. There's a lot of great content on there that will keep me interested. And the, and the biggest reason I dropped out is because I didn't want to keep up financially with the commitment you need to make with them to be a part of their biggest nights. Especially mm-hmm. when WrestleMania got to the point of $50, 60 you know, It's not even the $30 every month. It's like, well, now the biggest night, we need to gouge you for an extra 30 yeah. So last night... So they got me on that, and then I'm on the network, so I, oh, let's see what they're going to do for this pre-show, and then there's a the talk all day, oh, Hogan's going to be out, and I never pass out a chance to hear uh, the fans' reaction to Real American, so the, and then they did. It. I thought that was really smart, putting that on right away. Um, uh, maybe, maybe not. I guess you can make an argument both ways for that, but they got me uh, right away on the show, and I stuck with it. And. And, and and i thought they had such a great night and i think i tweeted you know the place to be if you wanted to mark out tonight certainly was green bay uh but i guess where they where they failed was in between the beginning and the middle it just doesn't feel like there's a whole lot going on you know and and i'm such a huge wrestlemania 3 guy i come from an era where there was 12 matches that night and you could argue three or four were filler and they made a mistake doing a six man tag instead of a, a tag team title match between bulldogs and Uh, Hard Foundation, it's a little hiccup there. But you have five or six matches that were masterfully built. I mean, you couldn't even... I don't think they could replicate that if if they tried. I mean, Steamboat Savage... Yeah, classic. One of the best ever. I mean, one of the greatest build-ups of all time. Hogan and Andre, an amazing build-up. Piper and Adonis, uh, to a lower extent, JYD and Harley Race. But, I mean... uh, even to a lower extent, Billy Jerkanes and Hercules. Uh, I mean, they just killed it. And I, I just, I see what you're saying and, and why I thought I would disagree with the blog, but ended up agreeing with it. It just, it seems dead. And I've heard a lot of complaints about the PG era of the company kind of hurting storytelling. And I've also heard a lot of complaints about Cena that it all just kind of comes back to him and, and kind of falls flat with him for some reason. You know what? I,
4: I'm with you on what the PG era argument, but I will say this when the WWE was in its attitude era, it got watered down and got repeated out of hand, it so right. quick. Yeah. Because how many times can Jerry Lawler say puppies? How many times can someone get busted open in the ring? How many times can we have a bra and panties match? And, and it, you get desensitized to it. So I don't necessarily disagree with the PG movement. Because when that stuff happens now, it's more shocking because WWE has conditioned us to now watch and almost despise the PG movement. And let me t- at the end of the day, they're a business. Now, John Cena is... To a credit, he is the hardest-working man in the industry. He makes them a ton of money. He does a a ton of work with Make-A-Wish, more than any other professional athlete in history. So he's he's great from a branding sense. What I get sick of as a viewer and as a fan is when you, you know, this is going to sound kind (laughs) of idiotic, but when you treat me like I'm an idiot from a storyline perspective. Last night we saw the same buildup that has been kind of, Cena's MO his entire career, I could have scripted this last night, Bray Wyatt, who is a rising star, comes out with the Wyatt family, beats down Cena, Uh, Cena against incredible odds, gets injured, goes in the back in the ambulance, which I think he should have his own ambulance line now, how many times he's been taken off in one, and then he'll come back at WrestleMania, defy the odds, and win. That has been the storyline that has been pumped in three or four times a year, every single year we last saw it when he went against Damian Sandow for the money in the bank briefcase which is ridiculous because it doesn't serve a purpose should Cena go over on these people maybe yes totally but he doesn't need the caveat of making a rising star like a Damian Sandow or a Bray Wyatt look weak because you you almost kill their build-up I mean Damian Sandow is probably going to be good in the long term but to argue that that helped him by having Cena beat him on one leg or one arm or whatever uh, for the money in ba- bank briefcase shot or whatever, that's ridiculous. And last night, Bray Wyatt, who I think – You know, we saw him go against Roman Reigns last night. And to Bray Wyatt's credit, you know, Roman Reigns is going to be a good star. He's still very raw in the ring. Bray Wyatt made that match incredible. He does a lot of good work that is, I I think, unnoted to the everyday fan who watches WWE. Bray Wyatt's a great worker. And he already has that ability to make somebody else across the ring from him look good. Uh, So you put Cena in this position to kind of... You know, I'm not saying he's going to defeat him at WrestleMania, but I've seen this script so many times. It's like, all right, this is the same story, and I don't want to see that. It doesn't doesn't do a purpose to John Cena either. I mean, you have the Superman hero gimmick all the time, and you're kind of just like sticking it to the fans like they're calling you out on this. We're sick of it. We've seen it. And you're still doing it. And it's just kind of the same old tired story as far as John Cena is concerned. And I don't think it, it pays it – does anybody any favors as far as Bray Wyatt or John Cena? Because if you're going to tell me that Bray Wyatt's the next up-and-coming big-time heel character in the WWE and he can't beat a guy in one leg, you got you got some serious issues right there with this credibility. And that's that's just my opinion. But um, I, I felt that was discredited a lot. Also – can we please stop putting Triple H in this double role here? If he's the authority, he can't touch certain you know wrestlers, can't perform or whatever, and then when it comes to WrestleMania, he's in a bout, uh, I'm just getting sick of it. I mean, call it one way or the other. If he's going to have an annual WrestleMania match, awesome. Go for it. The last couple matches he's been in have been great. Uh, put him in there, but to have him be the saving grace with Daniel Bryan... It's just a, that's not a payoff at all. And I don't understand the WWE's obsession with shoving Orton and Batista as their main event down your throat. Why are they so intent? When last night I got every indication that they are well aware fans don't want this. So why are you pushing forward for it? So that's where I failed last night. And I don't know about you, Steve. Do you have any interest in Orton and Batista in the main event? No,
1: none. I've none. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of the wrong person to ask that question, but... You know, because I've been kind of out and, and like last night I'm trying hard and and I'm kind of getting bored, but I'm like, you know, I, I don't know the guys as well. And I want to give it a chance again because I can watch the pay-per-views for the next six months and, you know, decide if I want to stick with the network or if I want to, uh, you know, what I want to do as a fan. They They have opened it up for me pretty nicely. Like I said, I think they did hit for sure on price point. They did a great job there. Uh, and I want to see how some of this original programming works out. I watched the first WrestleMania Rewind, and that's amazing. I mean, that was a total a great, great home run. I mean, they can make documentaries. Of course, you got to sometimes take them as, you know, as their word. Obviously, it's their perspective. But, uh, and there is another side to some of those stories that they do tell. But, no, I just, that's not going to get me to there. Um, they did, I, I don't know, though. I, I, I am I, I am excited. I, I will definitely watch and see what Undertaker and... Uh, and um, uh, help me out. Lesnar. Uh, Lesnar. What Lesnar and Lesnar do. Uh, because I, I thought they did pretty well with that, building that last night. I liked Heyman's role in that, too. I thought oh, he Heyman's really – Yeah, he worked the mic really well. I read your blog. we got, we got transit. We could talk about this all day. I read your blog on Sports Rants, which is something you do. Why don't you tell the people listening to the show a little bit about Sports Rants and how they found it and what the idea for it is and, and all that kind of good stuff?
4: Well, back in 2011, I came up with a uh, concept, and I thought that social media—you know—we see all the sports talk on Twitter. I think that's great, and then we see all these blogging networks. And then I think uh, I look at you know like a uh, ESPN.com where we get our sports news, and I always thought merging the three was natural. So, came up with the concept: the sports rants, which is where social media and social networking, whatever you want to call it these days, and sports talk merge. But it also allows um, contributor sections. So we have contributors for Sports Rants NFL, Sports Rants NBA, NHL, the major sports. But we also allow fans the opportunity or anybody who has the bug to get into the sports media or sports talk industry or is currently in the sports talk industry to create their own brand within Sports Rants. Now, what separates us from everybody else in the industry doing what, what, with what we're doing and what we're offering is... As I alluded to before, I got 10 years' expertise in SEO and internet marketing. Now, that is something I can speak about pretty dominantly. I've worked with some major fortune brands, uh, Dish Network being one of them, uh, Overstock, Vistaprint, Golf Channel, Guitar World, and I have basically made made it a platform on sportsbrands.com because – SEO is a very expensive venture for anybody, businesses, small businesses, blogs, websites to get into. And if you get it wrong, you're screwed. You're dead in the water. We, you need rankings. You need to be visible on the web. You need to know how to share things. And I feel like if you're good in sports talk, not all the time you, you aren't, is it understandable on how to properly put your content out there. So we provide a platform where SEO is built in. We educate you on how to use this. And this is coming from my 10 years of expertise. And we give everybody the tools to be successful. Uh, if they are on our uh, a contributor on our website, they get you know uh, prime exposure. They get to make money off of selling advertising. Now, unlike other websites, we do not take a cut of advertising. We basically say to you, if you want to sell advertising on your blog, go for it. Keep a hundred percent of the profits because if we sell advertising, that's what we're going to do as well. So we're very upfront with that. We don't like. I my father said something to me when I was getting into business, and I was very young and I didn't know a damn thing. My dad said to me, he goes. He who holds the money holds the power. And that has resonated with me because, you know, if I said to you, Steve, if you're a contributor and I said, you know what, I'm going to give you a percentage of my advertising revenue. And you said, all right, that's cool. You're relying on me to be honest with those numbers, to be like, hey, I just made a hundred bucks. I couldn't be making a thousand. We've had making that a th- deal. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. you know, it yeah. doesn't work. And you know what? I mean, you know, uh, before we got on air here, you and I had a talk and you asked me about a fight song for a college. I'm a college dropout. I never did good in high school. But one of the things I'm gifted in is I'm very competitive and I'm passionate about what I do. And for some reason, when I got in SEO, the little light bulb that was very dim at the time went off in my head. And I'm very good at this. And I always thought that it was a disservice that we cast aside bloggers in some way or if you don't have the traditional four year degree in journalism you don't your two cents don't glimmer that much and i always thought that was unfair because a lot of times the best perspective comes from the fan you know you can go on espn.com and i like espn and i like cnnsi but if you read a news article it reads the same almost on every other website and what i like is when i read a fan's perspective now there can be some blogs that are a bit over the top, which I, I think is a discredit sometimes to our industry. But there are blogs that are really insightful. When you have a fan that has is passionately tuned in, you have a fan who has historical perspective, and then you have a fan who's got enough acumen to put those thoughts together in an article and and display it intelligently. I think those fans that do it well, those bloggers who do it well should shine. And you know what? I'm in the same boat. When I started out and I started doing sports rants, no one gave me the time of the day. I had the advantage of having SEO and social media expertise backing me. So we got we got further along than most sites who, start, who are five or six years older than us. And I just wanted to pass that along because I feel like when people get in the position where now they're an authority, they don't want to help out the little guy anymore. They don't want to give them a boost. It's always about, oh, what big brand you're working with? No, I, I never thought the end goal. And for those people who are out there who end dream is to work for ESPN, Kudos to you. I hope you accomplish that. But I don't think that should be a measure of your success in the sports industry. You should be able to make a name for yourself and have that brand be credible without having to rely on your connection to ESPN or the big networks. That's why I formed sports brands. Fortunately, this kind of crazy idea uh, kind of took off. It, I gotta admit to you, I never I never thought it would get to this level, and then I look up and I'm like, "Wow, our traffic's ridiculous! <laughs> it's like it's crazy." I never did a podcast before. I just got up one day and decided I wanted to do one, and it, it kind of took off and became an animal of its own, which is good, and it seems to be serving the purpose. So that's SportsRants.com in a nutshell.
1: You can find Anthony on Twitter. He's at Anthony, D I M O R O. And why don't you give everyone who listens to this show everything else about where they need to find sports rants, your podcasts, all that kind of stuff? Laid out for everybody
4: awesome you can find me on on twitter at anthony tomorrow at sports rants and that's at sports underscore rants uh you can also come on over to sportsrants.com, com. 100 free membership even if you have no interest in creating a blog or contributing you have your own blog podcast it basically serves like twitter as well so go on there share your stuff we do not uh oppose that happening and you know what uh most of all, our, my podcast is very fan interactive. I'm on a little hiatus because I'm kind of butting heads with Blog Talk Radio right now. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I'm, taking, I'm putting my, drawing the line in the sand with them. But when I'm on air, you usually can find it on sportsrants.com, Blog Talk Radio. And, of course, I tweet ridiculous amounts, of time, <laughs> ridiculous amounts of tweets per day. And usually in there you will find a link to my podcast, which usually airs Mondays. We usually get on Tuesdays and Wednesdays as well on Sports Rants Radio.
1: Anthony, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Steve, for having me on. It was a pleasure. Talk to you soon. All right. I want to thank Anthony DeMoro, Matt Crossman, and Pete Weber for being on the show today. I want to thank everyone for being patient, uh, not being with us last week. Don't forget, you can find us on... The Internet, dot com. The podcast is also always on Stitcher and iTunes and any uh, third generation apps or third party apps you might listen to. If there's something that, a way that you'd like to listen to the podcast but can't, let us know. Uh, and you can email us at the sportscasters at com or you can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters.
2: Okay, one last thing for me this week, and it's kind of interactive here. It's a, I'm going to ask you to predict something. I mean, I could have okay. done this next week, but uh, that's part of the prediction. The NHL trade deadline is next Wednesday, so assuming we podcast on our regular schedule, we'll be recording on Tuesday, right? And it's possible that most of the activity, likely be that most right. of the activity wouldn't have happened yet, because it usually happens on Wednesday. True. Um, so my question for you is, Ryan Miller, will he be traded by the time we podcast? Will he be traded on Wednesday, or will he be not traded at all? You know, it's so interesting because if they didn't make a GM change, my answer would be he will not
1: be traded. Because I don't think there there's the market out there that would have satisfied the Darcy. previous GM, and I don't think he would have traded Ryan Miller. I don't know this GM's personality in that regard. But I still think that what they're going to get in return is going to be so weak that they may as well just take a shot at resigning him over the summer. Hmm. And if they don't, your loss of a third or fourth round pick, you know, the whole we let him walk away for nothing. I don't right. think is the same as when they let Briere and Jury walk away for nothing because those guys had real value. Sure, uh, I just don't think that in the market and the way goalies are used and the way the Blackhawks just won the Stanley Cup with. Uh, the fourth string goalie for team Canada and how team Canada just won the Stanley, uh, the Olympics with Carey price. Uh, I just, I don't see it. So I'm going to say not traded, I guess.
2: Yeah. I I don't know that. I agree with that. He won't be gone. I'm hoping the new aggressive GM will take what they can get. I suppose Uh, that said, it's a weird time of the year Uh, as a team. That's bad. Or even when your team's good, I think when your team's in the middle, the trade deadline period kind of passes you by and you feel like you weren't involved uh, a lot of times the Sabres were in that range, or about the ninth team, ninth place team, or eighth place team, just sneaking in. But my team is really bad right now, and my general manager is new, and my owner is rich and wants to see a winner and doesn't own a team to make money. So I'm excited, and what's weird about this is I felt this way about Ryan Miller once before. They at the last game of the season, it was uh, Sabers. Last home game of the season, they did a jersey off your back night, which a lot of teams do. And I remember Ryan Miller giving his jersey to this elderly couple and talking to them, and he looked real nice. And uh, He was almost in tears in the post-game interview because I think he believed, along with everyone else, that, that he had played his last game. Oddly enough, they kept him on this season in a terrible year. Except for him. He's been incredible. Yeah, he's been great. Uh, The Sabres local beat reporter, Paul Hamilton, has said that this might be the best year he's ever had, and nobody's going to know about it because of how bad the team has been. Well, now the trade deadline's coming along, and all the stuff you said about the goalie market is true. There just isn't a market for goalies. Uh, If he does get traded, it won't be a huge return. And I just found myself thinking... I'm excited for the trade deadline. I know when it happens, I'm gonna be sad. Ryan Miller's been a good saber. He's always been an honest guy. He's been a good interview, he's thoughtful. Uh he's always put his all out there. He hasn't always been much better than average. He's had now two really good seasons, his Vesna year and this year, and he had a great playoff run the year he kind of single handedly beat Ottawa. Yep. Uh so I'm gonna be bummed about him leaving when he does go, hopefully. But that will probably quickly turn to anger, and it definitely will turn to anger in like the masses' eyes if he doesn't get traded. So it's a really weird thing. He's he's one of the all-time great Sabres. Uh, I argued he was one of the all-time great U.S. goalies, which right. probably doesn't hold as much water since he barely played this last Olympics. But, uh, and I'm ready to see him go. I'm ready for my team to rebuild. And it's just there's not a lot of options, it seems like, for him. So it's going to be a really weird trade deadline for Sabres fans because on the one hand you're hoping a guy that most people generally like is gone, but there isn't much of a market for him. I just think they – I'm not going to be
1: as mad as you just because I think they have plenty of assets already in terms of draft picks. They also have millions and millions of dollars they need to spend to get to 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 the floor. floor. Um, And I don't think that the rebuild needs to take as long as some people do. I mean, if they hit on a draft pick who's the rookie of the year, sign two free agents that make an impact, and still have Ryan Miller, they can be a playoff team next year. Might not be a Stanley Cup team, but... Right. I, I mean, mean, I think
2: if you can convince Miller you're a contender in two years, maybe it's worth him staying around. But, I mean, if you sign him to a five-year deal, by the end of that, he's, what, 38, 39? And I know goalies are like a different thing. But like you said, too, animal. the money
1: doesn't matter as much. So, I mean, if you sign him to 5-for-5, five and five, it might need to be more than it, that. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It, it's not like they're not going to spend money somewhere else right? If he because could, of that. If he would take the 5-for-5. The me contract won't cripple them.
2: Well, to me, it's more about the cap hit. It's less – I mean, if they want to sign him to the league max for two years, I'd be fine with that because they're not ready yet. And, I mean, maybe in that second year they would be, but they'd still have guys that are under their initial contracts. My fear is if they sign him to, like, a seven, uh, five-year $7 million contract – Then all these Ristalinans and Gergensons and all these young players they have that are hopefully going to develop into big names. I don't want them to lose those guys because they have to hold on to Miller at the tail end of his career. Interesting.
1: Uh, Well, this has uh, been a long podcast, so I'll keep my one last thing short. Thanks for sticking in if you're still there. And I guess we shorted you with none last week, so a good time to do a long one. But uh, briefly, Anthony and I filled out brackets for the golf tournament this weekend, which was match play, and uh, he crushed me, but uh, I've already sent an email to pga.com to look into a potential scoring glitch, as I think I may have actually been the victor, uh, despite what he claims is over a 70-point victory, Uh, but uh, we both did pick the winner right in Jason Day, and one thing that happened over the weekend, kind of watching the last round, which was a crazy uh, final, which had... All square through 18 and 19 and 20 and 21 and 22. I think they played 23 holes to decide it with some crazy saves by both guys. It kind of made me realize that golf needs to have more match play. And they have four tournaments, uh, four majors every year. And one of them is not as good as the others. And that's the PGA Championship. It's the last one. Uh, doesn't The Sunday of it doesn't fall on a big holiday or anything. It's just kind of overlooked. And I think... I'm not the only one who's ever said this. So I'm not trying to claim I thought of the idea. But I want to be one of the advocates for PGA making their PGA Championship match play. I think it would be really cool. I think it would be fun for people to fill out brackets. And uh, it would be a build a little bit of interest for maybe the forgotten major.
0: me.